Welcome to Hackstack Level 2. We will now be giving you all the hacks you need to take your life to greater heights and deeper fulfillment. To get the most out of this show, please listen to the basic training of episodes 1 through 11. And now, let's start hacking. Here's your host, Coz. Hey, all you financial gurus. How are you doing after listening to the last episode featuring Dave Ramsey and his total money makeover? Uh, Some pretty cool information contained in that book. Some of you have heard about that book before and it was a refresher. And for others of you that was brand new and you guys were given a whole lot to think about. Uh, The cool thing about that book is uh, you can take these really simple concepts. So, I mean, if you understand things like you know, interest rates and investment rate of return, compound interest, uh, how that, how that can work powerfully over time, either to the good or to the bad. Uh, Once you sort of understand that, um, then you have a base of knowledge that you can start to apply to your life. Uh, And then it's just a matter of getting the job done and doing what you know you need to do. And that's where Dave Ramsey talks about it's really it's about 20% head knowledge and about 80% action. And I would, for the most part, agree with that assessment. And at the end of the day, that's that's pretty much the key, not only for you know when we talk about money, but for everything else we talk about on this show. You, you have to bridge the gap between knowing what to do and actually doing it, right? The gap between knowledge and action. And that's usually where most people get tripped up. Um, but you definitely need the knowledge and you need to reinforce the knowledge. Uh, I was having a a conversation with somebody uh, a little bit ago and this person was complaining a little bit about money, which is easy to do. I mean, pretty much everybody wants more of it or everybody, uh, for the most parts, uh, think that they don't have enough. And this particular person was, it was borderline whining, which I, I get, I've done it. And I was sort of going along with this person. And uh, he goes, he said something about not having enough money. And so I, I go into uh, a question mode. And uh, by the way, I think we'll we'll do, we will cover this at some point in interpersonal communication hacks, um, <laughs> how to talk to people and how to get to the, the root of the issue quickly uh, by asking a, a series of questions. But um, so that's kind of the way I approach this. I could see where this was going. You know, I think the guy was having sort of a, a pity party and I, you know, I know his personality a little bit, so I wanted to call him out and I go, so, you know, you, you've got money problems. And he's like, yeah, you know, I do. I go, okay, so how many books about money have you read in the last 12 months? Now, I, I don't think he was expecting that question because he just sort of looks at me and he goes, um, well, I haven't, I haven't read any. And I go, okay, well, how many books about money have you ever read in your lifetime? And there was a a solemn look on his face. He's like, well, you know, I guess I may have read something in school, but it's, it's been a while. So then I go, well, okay, how many people that you know that in your, in your eyes, do you think they have money or they, they know a lot about money? Um, how many people have you talked to about money or asked their advice about money or asked that person to mentor you about money? So how many people have you, you've done that again, silence and his, his, his pity party, uh, turned to a little bit of, of conviction, uh, right then and right there. 
And then I basically said to him, so, you know, if you wanted to get better at math, wouldn't you study math books and have a math tutor or have a math teacher or, you know, something along those lines? I mean, wouldn't you agree that if you wanted to get better at math, you you would have uh, all these tools at your disposal? Or at the very least, you would try to have as many of these tools as you possibly could have to become better at this subject. And, And he agreed. And then this is when I just asked the question, well, so why aren't you doing that with money? Why aren't you studying? Why aren't you studying money? Why aren't you reading some books about money? And he really didn't have an answer other than, yeah, that that's a good point. And and that's sort of where, you know, the conversation uh, ended and it changed subjects at that point. And it wasn't aggressive. It wasn't um, mean spirited. I, I was just asking those questions to uh, sort of feel out the situation and and let this guy know that you know hey there could be a potential solution to <laughs> to the problem you are currently complaining about and that solution lies clearly and squarely on your shoulders so with that in mind I want to on this episode continue to talk about money this is going to be part two of I think I think I've got it squared away now I think we're going to do four parts but this is part two of four on money. And in my opinion, there are just some basic books uh, like Money 101 that every person, man, I, I guess I could say it, every person in this country should read. I mean, they're they're really basic. They're, some of them are borderline classic, uh, which is the case on today's episode. And they just contain a ton of good information. But before we get into that particular book that you are going to listen to on today's podcast, I want to start off with uh, shaking up your mindset a little bit, getting in the right mood. And I want you to think about a question right now. Could you be a millionaire someday? And I know for some of you, that seems like such an unrealistic, far-off question uh, that it's almost laughable and in your gut instinct may be to say no. But after listening to Dave Ramsey and now listening to what we're going to listen to a little bit later on, I want you to think that, yes, that's actually possible. Not only is it possible, it's, it's actually probable and it's not all that hard to accomplish. But it, it does take some time. Uh, it takes some study, which we're going to do right now. And it does take you taking a long, hard look at yourself and asking that question, why? And we talked about uh, why we do what we do in one of the prior podcasts. Episode six was the why hack. So if you haven't listened to that, you want to check it out. But there, there is a, uh, I guess, a sister question that goes along with the question, why do you do something? And I want to play this clip by Jim Rohn. Not to be confused with Jim Rome, the uh, sportscaster, but Jim Rohn, spelled R-O-H-N. And Jim is a, uh, a kind of like a life coach, a, a motivational speaker, and um, consultant to corporate America. And he is the mentor uh, that trained Darren Hardy. And Darren Hardy attributes a lot of his success to Jim Rohn. And Darren Hardy is the person we've had on this podcast before who wrote The uh, Compound Effect. And Darren Hardy is also the person that had heavily uh, influenced Jeff Olson, who wrote uh, The Slight Edge, which is a big part of this podcast. It's actually episode number three. So it's really it's really cool to see uh, some of that transfer of knowledge and how one person teaches another. 
So anyway, that's just a, a kind of a cool story on uh, how knowledge and wisdom can transfer uh, from one person to the other. And that's just a little backstory on Jim Rohn. But, but for now, pay attention to this clip about why, but more importantly, some of the other questions that are associated with why. Here you go. I want you to ponder these four questions. The first question to ponder when you go home is why? Why go this far? Why try to learn this much? Why study? Why put yourself out? Why try to earn as much as you can earn? Share as much as you can share? Why try to become all that you can possibly become? Why develop yourself to the full? Why try to do it all? Why try to take on this much responsibility? Develop every skill you possibly can. See every human you possibly can. Go to every class you possibly can. Touch everybody you possibly can. Why do that much? Why go that far? Why share that much? Why give that much away? Why try to see everything? Why try to do everything? Why try to become everything? first question to ponder when you go home is why here's another good answer to why it's the second question why not why not see how much you can earn why not see how much you can learn why not see how many skills you can develop why not see what kind of person you can become why not see what kind of influence you can have why not see how many people you can rescue from oblivion I want you to take that personal why not? Why not? You've got to stay here till you go. I mean, what else are you going to do? Why not see how much you can do, how far you can go? Now, here's number three. Why not you? You've got the brains. You can make decisions. You can study the plan. You can change your life. You can grow immensely in the next few years. You can make your dreams come true. You can build a financial wall around your family. Nothing can get through. You can become healthy. You can become powerful. Why not you? My very last question on the questions to ponder is why not now? There never was a better time. And what a time now for us to take this dream and not let it die. Take this dream and give it life. Take this dream and breathe into it your own personal spirit until finally it becomes a flame that burns around the whole world. So there it is. Why not? I think that's pretty cool. So do you think you could become a millionaire? I mean, there's, there's a lot of things you could say to that question. There's a lot of excuses that you could come up why you couldn't become a millionaire. But then when you ask that question, why not? Why not me? Why, why, why can't it be me? You start to realize that <laughs> there's not a lot of good answers to that question. Why not try to develop yourself? Why not try to become a millionaire? And, and that's, that's what we're here to talk about today. 
So if you want to know about money and you want to know how to become a millionaire, uh, like I alluded to earlier, you, you need to study, but specifically you need to study millionaires. And, and the book we're going to play, some of you may, again, have read it, uh, and it could be a good refresher. Some of you, maybe not, but it is a book that was actually mentioned in the last book, Dave Ramsey's Total Money Makeover, and it's a book called The Millionaire Next Door with the subtitle of The Surprising Secrets of America's Wealthy, and it was written by Thomas Stanley and William Danko, and this book was published back in, uh, I think, 1996, I believe, so that's that's about two decades ago, so that's why I said this is this is pretty much a classic book already. And, and since it's so old, uh, the full book is out there on YouTube. So like I've done in the past, I've been able to get that audio for you and, and put it here so you can listen to it. And again, I think this is just a basic requirement to understanding money. Uh, it, this goes into what I call the school of thought number one on money. Uh, it's just being really basic and really smart with your money. Um, but a lot of times... It's really cool to hear real stories about <laughs> real people with real money and just some of the habits and things that they do to uh, not only acquire that money, but more importantly, to uh, keep that money. And a big concept in this book, as you soon will hear, is the difference between playing offense and playing defense. And for a lot of you uh, sports fans out there, uh, you know what they say, right? Offense sells tickets, but defense wins championships. So to use the illustration, if you want to be a millionaire, if, be, if becoming a champion is becoming a millionaire in that regard, you want to play good defense. So uh, pay attention to this book. Listen to some of the concepts. Try and uh, soak up as much information as you can, and you'll be well on your way to becoming a PAW. And you'll know what that means in just a moment. All right, enjoy the book, and we'll have some comments afterwards. Here you go. 20 years ago, we began studying how people become wealthy. Initially, we did it just as you might imagine, by surveying people in so-called upscale neighborhoods across the country. In time, we discovered something odd. Many people who live in expensive homes and drive luxury cars do not actually have much wealth. Then we discovered something even odder. Many people who have a great deal of wealth do not even live in upscale neighborhoods. That small insight changed our lives. It led one of us, Tom Stanley, out of an academic career, inspired him to write three books on marketing to the affluent in America, and made him an advisor to corporations that provide products and services to the affluent. In addition, he conducted research about the affluent for seven of the top ten financial service corporations in America. Between us, we have conducted hundreds of seminars on the topic of targeting the wealthy. Why are so many people interested in what we have to say? Because we have discovered who the wealthy really are and who they are not. And, most important, we have determined how ordinary people can become wealthy. What is so profound about these discoveries? Just this. Most people have it all wrong about wealth in America. Wealth is not the same as income. If you make a good income each year and spend it all, you are not getting wealthier. You are just living high. Wealth is what you accumulate, not what you spend. How do you become wealthy? Here, too, most people have it wrong. 
It is seldom luck or inheritance or advanced degrees or even intelligence that enables people to amass fortunes. Wealth is more often the result of a lifestyle of hard work, perseverance, planning, and most of all, self-discipline. So why aren't more people wealthy? More than 25 million households in the United States have annual incomes in excess of $50,000. More than 7 million have annual incomes over $100,000. But in spite of being good income earners, too many of these people have small levels of accumulated wealth. Many live from paycheck to paycheck. These are the people who will benefit most from this program. The median or typical household in America has a net worth of less than $15,000, excluding home equity. Factor out equity in motor vehicles, furniture, and such, and guess what? More often than not, the household has zero financial assets, such as stocks and bonds. How long could the average American household survive economically without a monthly check from an employer? Perhaps a month or two in most cases. And what about our senior citizens? Without Social Security benefits, almost one-half of Americans over 65 would live in poverty. The millionaires we discuss in this program are financially independent. They could maintain their current lifestyle for years and years without earning even one month's pay. The large majority of these millionaires are not the descendants of the Rockefellers or Vanderbilts. More than 80% are ordinary people who have accumulated their wealth in one generation. They did it slowly, steadily, without signing a multi-million dollar contract with the Yankees, without winning the lottery, without becoming the next Mick Jagger. Windfalls make great headlines, but such occurrences are rare. In the course of an adult's lifetime, the probability of becoming wealthy via such paths is lower than 1 in 4,000. Contrast these odds with the proportion of American households in the million-dollar and over net worth category. 3.5 per 100. Who becomes wealthy? Usually the wealthy individual is a businessman who has lived in the same town for all of his adult life. This person owns a small factory, a chain of stores, or a service company. He has married once and remains married. He lives next door to people with a fraction of his wealth. He is a compulsive saver and investor. And he has made his money on his own. 80% of America's millionaires are first-generation rich. Affluent people typically follow a lifestyle conducive to accumulating money. In the course of our investigations, we discovered seven common denominators among those who successfully build wealth. One, they live well below their means. Two, they allocate their time, energy, and money efficiently in ways conducive to building wealth. Three, they believe that financial independence is more important than displaying high social status. Four, their parents did not provide economic outpatient care. Five, their adult children are economically self-sufficient. Six, they are proficient in targeting market opportunities. Seven, they chose the right occupation. In The Millionaire Next Door, you will study these seven characteristics of the wealthy. We hope you will learn how to develop them in yourself. Ask the average American to define the term wealthy. Most would give the same definition found in Webster's. Wealthy to them refers to people who have an abundance of material possessions. We define wealthy differently. 
In this program, we define the threshold level of being wealthy as having a net worth of a million dollars or more. Based on this definition, only 3.5 million, or 3.5%, of the 100 million households in America are considered wealthy. About 95% of millionaires in America have a net worth of between $1 million and $10 million. Much of the discussion in this program centers on this segment of the population. Why focus on this group? Because this level of wealth can be attained in one generation. It can be attained by many Americans. Another way of defining whether or not a person, household, or family is wealthy is based on one's expected level of net worth. A person's income and age are strong determinants of how much that person should be worth. In other words, the higher one's income, the higher one's net worth is expected to be, assuming one is working and not retired. Similarly, the longer one is generating income, the more likely one will accumulate more and more wealth. So higher income people who are older should have accumulated more wealth than lower income producers who are younger. For most people in America with annual realized incomes of $50,000 or more, and for most people 25 to 65 years of age, there is a corresponding expected level of wealth. Those who are significantly above this level can be considered wealthy in relation to others in their income-slash-age cohort. Whatever your age, whatever your income, how much should you be worth right now? Here's a simple rule of thumb for computing your expected net worth. Multiply your age times your realized pre-tax annual household income from all sources except inheritances. Divide by 10. This, less any inherited wealth, is what your net worth should be. For example, if Mr. Anthony O. Duncan is 41 years old, makes $143,000 a year, and has investments that return another $12,000, he would multiply $155,000 by 41. That equals $6,355,000. Dividing by 10, his net worth should be $635,500. Given your age and income, how does your net worth match up? Where do you stand along the wealth continuum? If you are in the top quartile for wealth accumulation, you are a PAW, or Prodigious Accumulator of Wealth. If you are in the bottom quartile, you are a UAW, or under-accumulator of wealth. Are you a PAW, a UAW, or just an AAW, average accumulator of wealth? We have developed another simple rule. To be well-positioned in the PAW category, you should be worth twice the level of wealth expected. In other words, Mr. Duncan's net worth, wealth, should be approximately twice the expected value or more for his income-slash-age cohort or $635,500 multiplied by 2 equals $1,271,000. If Mr. Duncan's net worth is approximately $1.27 million or more, he is a prodigious accumulator of wealth. Conversely, what if his level of wealth is one-half or less than expected for all those in his income-slash-age category? Mr. Duncan would be classified as a UAW if his level of wealth were $317,750 or less, or one-half of $635,500. PAWs are builders of wealth. That is, they are the best at building net worth compared to others in their income-slash-age category. PAWs typically have a minimum of four times the wealth accumulated by UAWs.
Now let's turn to our list of seven characteristics of wealthy people. The first one is this. They live well below their means. What are the three words that profile the affluent? Frugal, frugal, frugal. The first time we interviewed a group of people worth at least $10 million, DECA millionaires, the session turned out differently than we had planned. We were contracted to study the wealthy by a large international trust company. Our client wanted us to study the needs of high-net-worth individuals. To make sure our deca-millionaire respondents felt comfortable during the interview, we rented a posh penthouse on Manhattan's fashionable east side. We also hired two gourmet food designers. They put together a menu of four pâtés and three kinds of caviar. To accompany this, the designers suggested a case of high-quality 1970 Bordeaux plus a case of a wonderful 1973 Cabernet Sauvignon. Armed with what we thought would be the ideal menu, we enthusiastically awaited the arrival of our decamillionaire respondents. The first to arrive was someone we nicknamed Mr. Bud. Sixty-nine and a first-generation millionaire, Mr. Bud owned several valuable pieces of commercial real estate in the New York metropolitan area. He also owned two businesses. You would never have figured from his outward appearance that he was worth well over $10 million. His dress was what you might call dull normal, a well-worn suit and overcoat. Nevertheless, we wanted to make Mr. Budd feel that we fully understood the food and drink expectations of America's deca-millionaires. So after we introduced ourselves, one of us asked, Mr. Budd, may I pour you a glass of 1970 Bordeaux? Mr. Budd looked at us with a puzzled expression on his face and then said, I drink scotch and two kinds of beer, free and Budweiser. We hid our shock as the true meaning of our decamillionaire's message dawned upon us. During the subsequent two-hour interview, the nine decamillionaire respondents shifted constantly in their chairs. Occasionally, they glanced at the buffet, but not one touched the pâté or drank our vintage wines. We knew they were hungry, but all they ate were the gourmet crackers. Their tastes reflected their lifestyles. Not flamboyant. Frugal. Webster's defines frugal as behavior characterized by or reflecting economy in the use of resources. Being frugal is the cornerstone of wealth building. Yet far too often the big spenders are promoted and sensationalized by the popular press. We are constantly barraged with media hype about so-called millionaire athletes, for example. Yes, some of the members of this small population are millionaires. But if a highly skilled ball player makes $5 million a year, having $1 million in net worth is no big deal. According to our wealth equation, a $5 million earner who is 30 years of age should be worth $15 million or more. How many highly paid ball players have a level of wealth in this range? We believe only a tiny fraction. Why? Because most have a lavish lifestyle and they can support such a lifestyle as long as they are earning a very high income. Technically, they may be millionaires, have a minimum net worth of a million dollars or more, but they are typically low on the prodigious accumulator of wealth scale. Most millionaires never earn one-tenth of five million dollars in a year. Most never become millionaires until they are 50 years of age or older. Most are frugal and few could have ever supported a high-consumption lifestyle and become millionaires in the same lifetime. Let's revisit a question we asked earlier. 
Why are so few people in America affluent? Even most households with six-figure annual incomes are not affluent. These people believe in spending tomorrow's cash today. They are debt-prone and are on earn-and-consume treadmills. To many of them, those who do not display abundant material possessions are not successful. In marked contrast to this attitude, the affluent tend to answer yes to three questions we include in our surveys. One, were your parents very frugal? Two, are you frugal? Three, is your spouse more frugal than you are? This last question is highly significant. Not only are the most prodigious accumulators of wealth frugal, their spouses tend to be even more frugal. Consider the typical affluent household. Nearly 95% of millionaire households are composed of married couples. In 70% of these households, the male contributes at least 80% of the income. Most of these men play great offense in the game called income generation. Great offense, in economic terms, means that a household generates an income significantly higher than the norm, which in America is an annual realized income of approximately $33,000. Most of these households also play great defense. That is, they are frugal when it comes to spending for consumer goods and services. One frugal high-income producer within the married couple category, however, does not automatically translate into a high level of net worth. Something else must be present. A self-made millionaire stated it best when he told us, I can't get my wife to spend any money. Most people will never become wealthy in one generation if they are married to people who are wasteful. A couple cannot accumulate wealth if one of its members is a hyper-consumer. This is especially true when one or both are trying to build a successful business. Few people can sustain profligate spending habits and simultaneously build wealth. Why aren't you wealthy, you ask? Well, let's examine your lifestyle. Is it one of great offense? Are you in the $70,000, $100,000, $200,000 income category? Congratulations, you play wonderful offense. But how is it that you keep losing the game called wealth accumulation? Be honest with yourself. Could it be that you play terrible defense? Most high-income earners are in the same situation, but not most millionaires. Millionaires play both quality offense and quality defense. And quite often their great defense helps them out-accumulate those who out-earn them, who have superior offenses. The foundation stone of wealth accumulation is defense. And this defense should be anchored by budgeting and planning. Do you wish to become affluent and stay affluent? Can you answer yes, candidly and honestly, to these four simple questions? Question 1. Does your household operate on an annual budget? Do you plan your consumption spending according to a variety of food, clothing, and shelter categories each year? Most millionaires do. Question 2. Do you know how much your family spends each year for food, clothing, and shelter? Almost two-thirds of the millionaires surveyed answered yes to this question. But only about 35% of high-income-producing non-millionaires answered yes to this question. And speaking of spending, let's talk about credit cards for a moment. Ask a large sample of millionaires a simple question about their credit cards. 
The results will give you an excellent idea of who these millionaires really are. Like most American households, most wealthy households have a MasterCard and a Visa card. The millionaire household is four times more likely to hold a Sears card, 43%, than a Brooks Brothers card, 10%. Both Sears and Penny's cards are significantly more popular among the wealthy than the cards of status retailers such as Brooks Brothers, Neiman Marcus, Saks Fifth Avenue, Lord & Taylor, or Eddie Bauer. Only 6.2% of the millionaire respondents hold the American Express Platinum Card, 3.4% hold Diners Club, and fewer than 1% own carte blanche. Question 3. Do you have a clearly defined set of daily, weekly, monthly, annual, and lifetime goals? The source of this question came from a DECA millionaire whom we interviewed a dozen years ago. He told us that he started a wholesale food business at the age of 19. He never finished formal high school, but did eventually receive his high school equivalency diploma. We asked him to account for the fact that, although he was a high school dropout, he had accumulated over $10 million. His response was as follows. I have always been goal-oriented. I have a clearly defined set of daily goals, weekly goals, monthly goals, annual goals, and lifetime goals. I even have goals to go to the bathroom. I always tell our young executives that they must have goals. Most millionaires agree. Financially independent people seem to be better able to visualize the future benefits of defining their goals in this regard. Question 4. Do you spend a lot of time planning your financial future? For every 100 millionaires who answer no, there are 192 who answer yes. On average, millionaires spend significantly more hours per month studying and planning their future investment decisions, as well as managing their current investments, than high-income non-millionaires. That is one of the main reasons that millionaires remain wealthy. Their attention to financial details helps them recognize opportunities and take advantage of them. Non-millionaires often fail to do this. Even those who have significant knowledge about excellent investment opportunities frequently do not leverage this knowledge. Consider the following examples. A highly productive sales professional, we will call him Mr. Willis, had Walmart as a client for more than 10 years. All during this time, Walmart was exploding in growth and value. How many shares of Walmart did Mr. Willis, the six-figure earning sales professional, ever purchase? Zero. Yes, zero, even though he had considerable first-hand knowledge of his client's success and an annual six-figure income. But he did purchase a foreign luxury car every two years during this time. A high-income producing marketing manager, Mr. Peterson, was employed in the high-tech field but he never invested a dollar in Microsoft or any other growth company. Never, in spite of having considerable knowledge about many of the firms in the technology industry. The owner of a printing business enjoyed having one of the leading beverage companies in America as a customer. The customer bought millions of dollars worth of printing from him annually. But how much money has the printer invested in his customer's equity offerings? Zero. In all three cases, the person makes a high income, yet none is a millionaire. 
In fact, Mr. Peterson, the marketing manager, has zero invested in stocks. He never invests any of his income. But he lives in a $400,000 home that is surrounded by others in the high-tech field with bigger mortgages. Too many high-income, low-net-worth types live from paycheck to paycheck, fearing a sudden downturn in our economy. The typical millionaire in our surveys has a total annual realized income of less than 7% of his wealth. This means that less than 7% of his wealth is subject to some form of income tax. Millionaires know that the more they spend, the more income they must realize. The more they realize, the more they must allocate for income taxes. So millionaires and those who will likely become affluent in the future adhere to an important rule. To build wealth, minimize your realized income and maximize your unrealized income. Income tax is the single largest annual expenditure for most households. It is tax on income, not on wealth and not on the appreciation of wealth if this appreciation is not realized, that is, if it does not generate a cash flow. What is the message? Even many high-income producing households are asset poor. One reason is that they maximize their realized incomes, often to support high-consumption lifestyles. Such people might wish to ask themselves a simple question. Could I live on less than 7% of my wealth? It takes great discipline to become affluent. We have interviewed many people worth 2 or $3 million who have total realized annual household incomes of less than $80,000. How much does the typical American household realize in income each year? About thirty-five dollars to $40,000, or nearly the equivalent of 90% of its net worth. The result is that the typical household in America pays the equivalent of more than 10% of its wealth in income taxes each year. How about the millionaires whom we surveyed? On average, their annual income tax bill is an amount equal to only a bit over 2% of their wealth. That is one of the reasons they remain financially independent. We once asked a high-income, low-net-worth corporate manager, we will refer to him as Mr. Rodney, a simple question. Why is it that you never participated in your corporation's tax-advantaged stock purchase plan? This manager's employer offered him a matching stock purchase plan. Each year, the manager could purchase the equivalent of 6% of his income in shares of the corporation, which would reduce his realized taxable income. Also, the corporation would match his purchase of company stock up to a certain percentage of his income. Mr. Rodney reported that, unfortunately, he could not afford to participate. It seemed that all his income went toward his $4,200 monthly mortgage payment, two leased vehicles, tuition bills, club dues, a vacation home that needed to be fixed up, and taxes. Ironically, Mr. Rodney wants eventually to become financially independent. But, like most UAWs, Mr. Rodney is not realistic in this regard. He has sold his financial independence. What if he had taken full advantage of the tax-advantaged benefit from the time he was first employed? Today, he would be a millionaire. Instead, he is on the perpetual earn-and-consume treadmill. What if your goal is to become financially independent? Your plan should be to sacrifice high consumption today for financial independence tomorrow. Every dollar you earn to spend is first discounted by the taxman. 
Earning $100,000 may be required to purchase a $68,000 boat, for example. Millionaires tend to think this way. That's why only a minority own boats. Do you plan to live on a boat after you retire? Or would you prefer to live on a $3 million pension plan? Can you do both? Now for the second of the seven factors that the wealthy have in common. They allocate their time, energy, and money efficiently in ways conducive to building wealth. Efficiency is one of the most important components of wealth accumulation. Although both prodigious accumulators and under-accumulators of wealth state similar goals about achieving wealth, these groups have completely different orientations when it comes to how much time they actually spend on wealth-building activities. PAWs allocate nearly twice the number of hours per month to planning their financial investments as UAWs do. There is a strong positive correlation between investment planning and wealth accumulation. UAWs spend less time than PAWs consulting with professional investment advisors, searching for quality accountants, attorneys, and investment counselors, and attending investment planning seminars. PAWs on average spend less time worrying about their economic well-being. We have determined that under-accumulators are much more concerned than prodigious accumulators with the prospects of not being wealthy enough to retire in comfort, never accumulating significant wealth. Are their concerns realistic? Yes. Yet UAWs spend more time worrying about these issues than taking proactive steps to change their tendencies to overconsume and underinvest. What type of person recently indicated that he was afraid and worried about the following two issues? One, experiencing a significant reduction in his standard of living. Two, not having an income high enough to satisfy his family's purchasing habits. Who is this person? Perhaps he is a mail carrier with two children in college. Or perhaps he is a single, low-income parent who has to raise three children. Do you envision a middle-aged corporate manager who recently found out that his position would be eliminated? Certainly these are logical guesses. People in these categories would very likely express fear about having to reduce their standard of living and not having the income to satisfy their family's buying habits. But none of these people is the one we are about to profile. The respondent who actually expressed these fears and worries is a surgeon in his 50s whom we shall call Dr. South. He is married and has four children. Why should he be worried about his standard of living and his income? Could it be that he's down on his luck, perhaps unable to continue to practice medicine because of a disability? No. Actually, he is a fine physician who earned more than $700,000 during the year prior to our interview with him. But in spite of his high income, his net worth in real terms is declining. He has reasons to be afraid and worried. Dr. North is very similar to Dr. South in age, income, and family composition. But Dr. North is a PAW. His profile is also detailed later in this program. Dr. North has far fewer worries than Dr. South. He is not afraid of being forced to reduce his standard of living. Unlike Dr. South, he is not concerned that his income will not be high enough to satisfy his family's purchasing habits. This is especially interesting given that both Dr. South and Dr. North have similar incomes. The case studies that follow will introduce you to these physicians and their families. You will learn a lot about how each man makes use of his time, energy, and money. Planning and controlling consumption 
are key factors underlying wealth accumulation. Thus, one should expect that PAWs like Dr. North take the time to plan their budgets. They do. Conversely, Dr. South has no control over his family's consumption, other than his household's income limit. We asked Drs. South and North about their respective planning and controlling systems. Does your household operate on a fairly well-thought-out annual budget? Dr. South replies, no, while Dr. North says, yes, absolutely. Operating a household without a budget is akin to operating a business without a plan, without goals, and without direction. The Norths have a budget that calls for them to invest at least one-third of their pre-tax household income each year. In fact, during the year that we interviewed Dr. North, he and his wife invested nearly 40% of their annual pre-tax income. How were they able to do this? In short, they consume at the same level as the average family that earns about one-third as much as they do. What about the Souths? They consume at the same level as the average household that earns nearly two times more than they do. In fact, their hyper-use of credit is more in line with that of households that earn several million dollars each year. The Souths essentially spend all of or more than their income each year. This income is their only restraint. We asked both doctors another set of questions. 1. Do you know how much your family spends each year for food, clothing, and shelter? 2. Do you spend a lot of time planning your financial future? 3. Are you frugal? You probably predicted the outcome. Dr. South responded with three no's, while Dr. North responded in true PAW fashion with three yeses. Consider the frugal orientation of Dr. North. He stated emphatically, for instance, that he never bought a suit that was not offered at a discount or a special price. This is not to suggest that Dr. North is poorly dressed, nor does he wear cheap suits. Rather, he purchases quality clothing, but not at full price, and never on impulse. This behavior was part of his socialization process as a youth. When I was going to school, my wife taught. We had a small income. Even then, we always had a rule. To save. Even then, we saved. You can't invest without something. The first thing is to save. Even when I was 11 years old, I saved my first $50 from working in a grocery store. It's just like that today. Only today, the number of zeros change. More zeros, but it's the same rule, same discipline. Dr. South reported having just the opposite orientation. How much did he and his family spend on clothing during the year prior to our interview? About $30,000. Thus, the South spend nearly as much on clothing each year as the average American household earns in total. Most high-income households consist of traditional married couples with children. Both the South and North households are traditional. We determined long ago that the habits of both husband and wife account for variations in accumulating wealth. Your spouse's orientation toward thrift, consumption, and investing is a significant factor in understanding your household's position on the wealth scale. Who is the tightwad in your household? In the case of Dr. North's family, both he and his wife fit the profile. Both live well below their means. Both contribute to planning their well-thought-out annual budget. Neither objects to buying used motor vehicles. 
both can tell you how much their family spends each year for a variety of products and services. Neither objected to sending their children to public elementary and high schools. Both place a high priority on being financially independent. Yet these goals never translated into shortchanging their three children. The parents funded their children's college educations, as well as their graduate school and law school tuition and fees. They also provided them with funds to purchase homes and for related expenditures. The Norths paid for these expenditures out of investments that they set aside for their children. Conversely, the Souths are not investors. Almost all such allocations in the South household come from current earned income. Now let's evaluate Dr. South's wealth-building performance. He is responsible for his household's income, and there is no argument that he is extraordinary in this regard. His performance places him in the 99.5 percentile of all income earners in America. But he is also responsible, in part, for making other decisions for his household. He buys the motor vehicles and financial advice. He also makes investment decisions, but neither he nor his wife does any budgeting for the family. The South's consumption habits are related to the fact that they have no centralized control over their expenditures. Much of their consumption is a function of independent action in this household drama. Mrs. South is responsible for purchasing a wide variety of products and services for her household. She did not consult with anyone before spending $30,000 for clothing last year. She does her thing and her husband does his. Mrs. South is a particularly ardent patron of upscale department stores. These include Neiman Marcus, Saks Fifth Avenue, and Lord & Taylor. She carries credit cards for each of these stores. In addition, she and her husband hold a MasterCard, gold, and a Visa, preferred card. Dr. South also has the American Express Platinum card. Why does Mrs. South spend so much money? In classic UAW fashion, her husband has encouraged her to do so. He was the product of a high-income-producing, indulgent set of parents. He, in turn, has given his wife almost a blank check when it comes to shopping. And, of course, the Souths associate with other hyper-consumers. But there is something she and her husband don't know. They are unique. They are not typical consumers. No one ever told them that most people in their income bracket, including the Norths, never spend money like the Souths do. Unfortunately, the Souths never learned about the prodigious accumulators of wealth. The Norths are very different from the Souths in their spending behavior. Both Dr. and Mrs. North come from backgrounds of frugality and thrift. Throughout their marriage, they have communicated with each other about resource allocations. Their budgeting system is basic to their controlled consumption lifestyle. Unlike the Souths, the Norths own no credit cards for upscale department stores. Almost all of their household purchases are placed on one central credit card, a Visa preferred card. Both their purchases are listed on one single statement each month. Each month, they determine how much remains to be allocated for each consumption category. And at the end of each year, they refer to these statements to compute their total expenditures for each category. Using this statement facilitates budgeting and making appropriations for the following year. Most important, their planning, budgeting, and consuming are coordinated events. Unlike the Souths, the Norths have one joint checking account to help facilitate the budgeting of items not paid for with their credit card. Do you know exactly how much your family spent last year for each and every category of product and service? Without such knowledge, 
it's difficult to control your spending. If you can't control your spending, you're unlikely to accumulate prodigious amounts of wealth. A good start is to keep an accurate record of each and every expenditure that your family makes each month. Or ask your accountant to help you set up a system for tabulating and categorizing these expenditures. Then work with her to develop a budget. The goal is to enable you to set aside for investing purposes at least 15% of your pre-tax income each year. What do you spend time worrying about? Are your concerns congruent with wealth accumulation? Or do you spend time thinking about issues that are impediments to becoming affluent? How do PAWs and UAWs differ in regard to their fears and concerns? In simple terms, UAWs worry more than PAWs. PAWs and UAWs also worry about different issues. What if you spend much of your time thinking about a lot of issues that concern you? you will spend less time taking action to solve these problems. And what if your fears provide a foundation for increased spending? You may be a member of the UAW group. Fears and concerns can be both a cause for becoming a UAW as well as a result. Will a person who constantly worries about earning more money to enhance his lifestyle become wealthy? Probably not. Dr. South is not wealthy, in part because he concerns himself with such issues. Dr. North is wealthy today because he placed much less priority on standard-of-living issues than did Dr. South. In our research, Dr. South told us that 19 issues were of high or moderate concern to him. Dr. North was concerned with only about seven issues. Thus, it's only logical to conclude that the Dr. Norths of this country have more time and energy to devote to wealth-enhancing activities. Let's examine how these doctors' fears and worries or lack of them, have affected their lives. The Souths have four children. Two are adults. Dr. South has serious, well-founded concerns about their future. UAWs tend to produce children who eventually become UAWs themselves. What is expected of children who are exposed to a household environment predicated upon very high consumption, few, if any, economic constraints, little planning or budgeting, no discipline, and pandering to every product-related desire? Like their UAW parents, as adults, these children are often addicted to an undisciplined, high-consumption lifestyle. Further, these children typically will never earn the incomes necessary to support the lifestyle to which they have grown accustomed. Certainly, Dr. South's parents' indulgent lifestyle contributed to his becoming a UAW. His parents paid for his home and all other expenses. They provided him with substantial gifts of cash each year. In essence, he never really had to change his consumption habits or standard of living after leaving home. Fortunately for him, he has the income to support his addiction to consumption. But what about his children? They have lived in a high-consumption environment that would be extremely difficult to replicate on their own. The curtain is coming down on the third generation. Dr. South indicated in our interviews with us that he believed his children would never generate even a fraction of the income he currently earns. In comparison, Dr. North's adult children are demonstrating more independence and discipline, in part because they've been exposed to a much more frugal, well-planned, and disciplined lifestyle. As we noted, the Norths consume at a level that is more congruent with a household earning less than one-third of their income. This living below their means is precisely why PAWs throughout the income spectrum 
tend to produce children who are economically disciplined and self-sufficient adults. PAWs tend to produce children who become PAWs. We questioned both Dr. South and Dr. North about their fears and worries concerning their children. As you may have already predicted, Dr. South is much more concerned about this issue. He specifically expressed fears of 1. Having adult children who think his wealth is their income. 2. Having to support his adult children financially. Imagine how disconcerting it is for someone like Dr. South to face the prospect of supporting his extended family. Later, we will explore the implications of economic outpatient care in great detail. However, there is an important point to note at this time. Having adult children who are UAWs greatly reduces the probability that their parents will ever become wealthy. Dr. South wonders where his children got the idea that their parents would provide them with substantial economic outpatient care. He worries that he will not have the resources to provide his children with all the subsidies his parents gave him. There is yet another fear Dr. South must face. He is becoming more and more worried that his children will not get along with each other. Much of this concern is rooted in their need for economic support from their parents. Dr. North does not worry about such issues. We asked both doctors about these types of concerns. Dr. South worried that his family and children will fight over his estate and that he will be accused of financially favoring one adult child over another. Are Dr. South's fears justified? Ask yourself this question. What is the greatest fear of the 30-year-old sons and daughters of the Dr. Souths of America? That the economic outpatient care they receive from their parents will stop. Many 30-something UAWs cannot maintain anywhere near the lifestyle they had while living with dad and mom. In fact, many are unable to purchase even a modest home without financial subsidies from their parents. It is not unusual for these rich kids to receive substantial cash and other financial gifts until they are in their late 40s or even early 50s. Often, these adult UAWs compete with each other for their parents' wealth. What would you do if your economic subsidy was being threatened by the presence of your equally dependent brothers and sisters? Dr. South is not only worried about his problems, he is also worried about his children's problems. Consider for a moment the legacy he is leaving them. What are the ramifications of being an economically dependent adult? How much insecurity and fear will they have to deal with in the future? How will they be able to have harmonious, loving relationships with each other? These are among the issues Dr. South spends more and more time contemplating. Dr. North is much less concerned with such problems. His adult children are far less likely to have a perceived need for major doses of economic outpatient care. Many high-income earners in America, both PAWs and UAWs, are greatly concerned about the actions of the federal government. These actions are external forces, those over which an individual has no control. Dr. South indicated that he feared four external forces that are government-related. Interestingly, these issues are not of major concern to Dr. North. Let's look at these four concerns. 1. Paying increasingly high federal income taxes. Both physicians think that the federal government is likely to require high-income producers to pay more in taxes. But tax increases are more the concern of Dr. South than of Dr. North. Why is Dr. South concerned about this issue? Because he needs to maximize his realized income to support his hyperconsumption lifestyle. 
If the government requires Dr. South to pay a higher share of his income, his lifestyle will be threatened. What about Dr. North? He told us that he had a low level of concern over the prospects of the federal government increasing the share of his realized income that he must pay in taxes. Last year, Dr. North paid approximately $277,000 in income taxes. This may seem like a big bite, but look at it through the eyes of Dr. North. He looks at income tax more as a portion of his total wealth than a portion of his realized income. Dr. North's tax bite was just 4% of his total wealth. What if the government doubled the tax rate on high incomes? This is very unlikely, but just as an example, Dr. North would then have to pay the equivalent of 8% of his wealth each year. By comparison, Dr. South would be at a wealth rate of 150%. Is it any wonder Dr. North is much less concerned about paying increasingly higher federal income taxes than Dr. South is? 2. Increased government spending and the federal deficit. Dr. South is very concerned about this issue. He believes that increased spending on the part of the government will translate into higher taxes on his income. Dr. North is not overly concerned for the reasons stated above. 3. A high rate of inflation. Dr. South is also concerned that such government action as increased spending and an increase in the deficit will precipitate a significant increase in the inflation rate. Dr. South has a moderate level of concern about this issue because he, like many UAWs, keeps trading up to more and more expensive homes, cars, clothes, and so on. On the other hand, Dr. North feels that inflation will significantly increase the value of at least part of his investment portfolio. 4. Increased government regulation of business and industry. Most physicians feel that this type of government action is targeted at them. They interpret increases in government regulation as preceding the advent of socialized medicine. Both physicians feel that this would have a dampening effect on the fees they generate for their professional services. Dr. South indicated that this issue is of significant concern to him, while Dr. North viewed such action as only a minor concern. Why do these two respondents perceive things so differently? The actions of the government are often a threat to high-income earners, who use most of their incomes to support their lifestyles. This is especially true when there is political gain for those in power in targeting the wealthy. Actually, the people the politicians are targeting are high-income earners. Most politicians don't understand the difference between having a high income and having high levels of wealth. They have a more difficult time targeting people with high levels of net worth. Most millionaires who are PAWs are self-employed. Being self-employed gives one much more control over one's economic future than does working for others. Conversely, employees today, even high-income producing executives, have less control over their livelihoods than ever before. Downsizing, for example, is taking its toll, even among the most productive employees. More often than not, even high-income producing employees are not likely to be millionaires. UAWs who are employees, not self-employed, are particularly vulnerable to external forces that threaten their ability to earn a living. We found that only 19% of PAWs versus 36% of high-income producing non-millionaires, UAWs, were concerned about having their jobs eliminated. 
But in spite of the handwriting that is often on the wall, even most high-income earning employees are consumption-oriented. Most PAWs agree with the following statements, while most UAWs disagree. I spend a lot of time planning my financial future. Usually I have sufficient time to handle my investments properly. When it comes to the allocation of my time, I place the management of my own assets before my other activities. Conversely, UAWs tend to agree with the following statements. I can't devote enough time to my investment decisions. I'm just too busy to spend much time with my own financial affairs. PAWs and UAWs also differ in the amount of time they actually allocate to planning their investments. Planning is typically found to be a strong habit among people who have a demonstrated propensity to accumulate wealth. Planning and wealth accumulation are significant correlates even among investors with modest incomes. One of the more interesting findings in our studies of the affluent relates to why many people spend so little time planning their investments. Many people who do little or no investment planning often feel the way these respondents did. It's hopeless. I never have the time needed to make it pay off. We never have made so much, but the more we earn, the less we seem to accumulate. Our careers take up all our time. I don't have 20 hours a week to fool with investing my money. But PAWs do not spend anywhere near 20 hours a week in this way. The middle-income PAWs spend an average of only 8.4 hours per month planning their investments. This translates to about 100.8 hours per year. Given that there are 8,760 hours in a year, PAWs allocate approximately 1.2% of their time planning their investments. UAWs, on average, spend 4.6 hours per month planning their investments, or about 55.2 hours per year. In other words, PAWs spend an average of 83% more hours, 100.8 versus 55.2, planning per month than do UAWs. Will UAWs automatically become PAWs simply by doubling the number of hours they devote to planning their investments? Not likely. Planning is only one of many key ingredients in building wealth. Most PAWs have a regimented planning schedule. Each week, each month, each year, they plan their investments. They also start planning at a much earlier age than do UAWs. UAWs, on the other hand, are much like some overweight people who occasionally starve themselves to reach their ideal weight. But more often than not, they regain all the weight they lost and more. UAWs may start the new year with a plan that outlines a variety of investment goals. These goals may be the product of a couple of days of aggressive planning that specifies the number of dollars allocated to investments. Also included in the plan may be a significant cold turkey reduction in the consumption of goods and services. More often than not, this shock planning and corresponding radical change in lifestyle are so severe that they do not work. The typical UAW in this case quickly becomes disenchanted with his new model for wealth building. Soon, he falls off the wagon, once again breaking his promise of planning, investing more, and consuming less. Many UAWs think that a professionally prepared plan will make them PAWs overnight. But even the best financial plans are ineffective if you don't follow them. All too often, UAWs think that others can lose weight for them. 
The UAWs in such cases would greatly benefit from understanding how PAWs operate. PAWs do a little planning each and every month. Again, only about eight hours a month. UAWs might do more planning if they knew that it would not require them to quit their day jobs. PAWs build wealth slowly. They do not live a Spartan existence, but they do have a regimen when it comes to balancing working, planning, investing, and consuming. Nearly all, 95% of the millionaires we surveyed own stocks. Most have 20% or more of their wealth in publicly traded stocks. Yet you would be wrong to assume that these millionaires actively trade their stocks. Most don't follow the ups and downs of the market day by day. Most don't call their stockbrokers each morning to ask how the London market did. Most don't trade stocks in response to daily headlines in the financial media. Do you define active investors as people who, on average, keep an investment for days? Of the millionaires we interviewed, fewer than 1% of those who own stock are in this league. How about weeks? Another 1%. Let's move up to those who, on average, hold on for months but less than a year. Fewer than 7% are monthly investors. Overall, only about 9% of the millionaires we have interviewed hold their investments for less than one year. In other words, fewer than 1 in 10 millionaires are active investors. The so-called active investor is one of the more difficult types of millionaires to find for interview purposes. He may be an ideal target market for stockbrokers. He certainly spends considerable amounts for brokerage fees related to his trading, but he represents a very small minority of the millionaire population. In fact, we have encountered more non-millionaire active traders than millionaires who actively trade. How can this be possible? Because it is very expensive to buy and sell, buy and sell, buy and sell one's equity holdings each day or week or month. Often, active investors spend more time trading than studying and planning their investments. Conversely, millionaires spend more time studying far fewer offerings. Thus, they can focus their time and energy. The resources needed to master their understanding of a much smaller variety of offerings in the market. Let's return to our case studies, Doctors North and South, to see financial planning in action. Dr. North allocates about 10 hours in a typical month, or 120 hours a year, to studying and planning his future investment decisions. In contrast, Dr. South allocates 3 hours a month, or fewer than 40 hours a year. Who spends more time managing his current investments? Again, the answer is predictable. Dr. North, on average, allocates about 20 hours a month, or 240 hours in a typical year, for this purpose, while his counterpart reported spending only one hour per month managing his current investments. Certainly, this is a contributing factor to Dr. South's low net worth. Dr. North is a focused investor. He has two favorite investment categories, agricultural land and stocks from the medical industry. First, a fellow I attended medical school with, he saved the life of a patient who believed in investing in grade-A agriculture and orchards. My colleague invested and told me about it. He told me that these people were very honest. I met them and agreed. I have been investing ever since, still investing regularly today. I have made most in the stock market from the medical industry, drug companies, and medical instrument companies. I know this area. I do research on the medical drug field. 
That's what Warren Buffett does. Invest in companies that he knows and understands. But you must have seed money or savings to invest in areas you have knowledge. I have over $2 million in my profit-sharing plan. Dr. South is responsible for making the major investment decisions in his family. It was his decision to have accounts at four different full-service brokerage firms. But surprisingly, Dr. South has less than $200,000 in securities. Then why does he have four different financial advisors? Because he believes, incorrectly, that he does not need to spend time making his own investment decisions. He admitted to us that he would be really affluent if he did not take advice from these so-called experts. But even bad advice does not come cheap. We estimated that Dr. South spent over $35,000 in a single year for advice and trades related to his poorly performing $200,000 portfolio. What about Dr. North? During the same period, he spent $0 for transaction fees and $0 for financial advice. He is his own financial advisor. He rarely sells stocks. Also, there are no transaction fees for his direct investing in farmland and its products. Dr. South, in traditional UAW fashion, has been burned by financial advisors. Too often, people in his position respond to cold calls from brokers who are touting the stock of the week. Too often, Dr. South is late entering the up market and exits it too early. In sharp contrast, most of the PAWs we have interviewed make their own investment decisions. They take the time and energy to study investment opportunities. They consult with financial advisors. But ultimately, their investment decisions are their own. Now let's turn to the third of our seven factors shared by millionaires. They believe that financial independence is more important than displaying high social status. Mr. W. W. Allen is a self-made multimillionaire. He and his wife have lived in the same three-bedroom house in the same middle-class neighborhood for nearly 40 years. Mr. Allen owns and manages two manufacturing businesses in the Midwest. During his entire married life, he has owned only full-sized General Motors sedans. He will tell you that he never burdened himself with status vehicles or products of any kind. Mr. Allen's businesses, as well as his household, are highly efficient operations. The productivity of his businesses, coupled with his household's moderate consumption habits, produced many surplus dollars. These, in turn, were reinvested in his businesses, commercial real estate, and the common stocks of a variety of high-quality American corporations. Mr. Allen is what we call a super-PAW. His net worth exceeds the expected value for people in his income-slash-age category by more than tenfold. During the course of his career, Mr. Allen has helped many other entrepreneurs. He has acted as a mentor to dozens of business owners and has saved many businesses from going under by giving financial assistance to struggling entrepreneurs. But he never extended credit to people who exhibited the big hat, no cattle philosophy. In his mind, such people would never be able to repay their debts. These types, according to Mr. Allen, spend, 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 in anticipation of having money before they even earn it. Mr. Allen, as well as those people whom he has backed financially, have never felt that their purpose in life was to look wealthy. According to Mr. Allen, that's why I am financially independent. If your goal is to become financially secure, you'll likely attain it. 
But if your motive is to make money to spend money on the good life, you're never going to make it. Many people who never achieve financial independence have a much different set of beliefs. When we ask them about their motives, they speak in terms of work and career. But ask them why they work so hard, why they selected the careers they did, and their answers are much different from Mr. Allen's. They are UAWs. And UAWs, especially high-income producers, work to spend, not to achieve or become financially independent. UAWs view life as a series of trade-ups from one level of luxury to the next. So who enjoys working? Who really gets satisfaction from their careers, PAWs or UAWs? In most of the cases we have examined, PAWs love working, while a large portion of UAWs work because they need to support their conspicuous consumption habit. Such people and their motives offend Mr. Allen. He stated numerous times, Money should never change one's values. Making money is only a report card. It's a way to tell you how you're doing. Mr. Allen's values and priorities were recently tested. Several of those people whom Mr. Allen helped stay in business decided to purchase a special birthday gift for him. What a nice gesture, they thought. But status gifts, whether from friends or rich parents, are not always congruent with the recipient's values and lifestyle. And often such gifts place tremendous pressure on the recipients to spend more and more of their income to fill in the picture. Some wealthy parents buy their adult children homes in affluent neighborhoods. Great idea? Perhaps they should realize that affluent neighborhoods are high-consumption neighborhoods. From property taxes to the pressure to decorate, from the perceived need to send their children to expensive private schools to the $40,000 four-wheel-drive luxury suburban, the children are now on the earn-to-spend treadmill. Thanks, Mom and Dad. As Mr. Allen, the Super PAW, told us, Something interesting recently happened. I discovered I was to be given a surprise present from several close business associates. A Rolls Royce for a present. It was ordered for me. Special color, special interior. They ordered it about four months before I found out about it. Still had about five months before delivery. How do you go and tell somebody who wants to give you a Rolls Royce that you don't want it? Why did Mr. Allen refuse to accept such a marvelous gift? He said, There's nothing the Rolls Royce represents that's important in my life, nor would I want to have to change my life to go along with owning the Rolls. I can't throw fish in the back seat of the Rolls like I do right now when I go fishing. I'm going to have to get you all to the lake. I'm out fishing here every weekend. We have some of the best freshwater fishing in the country, right out here where I keep my fishing boat. Mr. Allen's type of fishing includes throwing bloody fish in the back seat of his four-year-old, full-sized, American-made, non-luxury vehicle. But such behavior is incongruent with driving a Rolls-Royce down to the lake. It would be out of place. Mr. Allen would not feel comfortable with such a vehicle. Thus, he contended, he had to change his behavior by ceasing to fish or refuse the gift. Let's consider Mr. Allen's dilemma further. His office is located in his manufacturing plant, which is in an old industrial area. An automobile like the one being offered might well be out of place in such an environment. And, of course, Mr. Allen does not want to operate two vehicles. That would be inefficient. Mr. Allen also feels that a luxury car would alienate many of his workers. 
they might get the feeling that their boss was exploiting them. How else could he afford such an expensive vehicle? There are other considerations as well. With a Rolls, I can't go to some of the crummy restaurants I enjoy going to. Can't drive up in a Rolls Royce. So, no, thank you. And so I had to call and say, I really got to tell you something. That I don't want it. It's totally unimportant. There are some things that are more fun to do, more interesting to do, than owning a Rolls. Mr. Allen recognizes that many status artifacts can be a burden, if not an impediment, to becoming financially independent. Life has its own burdens. Why add excess baggage? How do millionaires go about acquiring motor vehicles? About 81% purchase rather than lease their vehicles. Most have not purchased a car in the last two years. In fact, 25% have not purchased a motor vehicle in four or more years. How much do millionaires pay for these vehicles? The typical millionaire, those in the 50th percentile, paid $24,800 for his most recent acquisition. 30% spent $19,500 or less. Many affluent respondents take joy in driving vehicles that do not denote so-called high status. They are more interested in objective measures of value. Some millionaires do spend considerable dollars for top-of-the-line luxury automobiles. But they are in the minority. For instance, approximately 70,000 Mercedes were sold in this country last year. This translates into about one-half of one percent of the more than 14 million motor vehicles sold. At the same time, there were nearly 3.5 million millionaire households. What does this tell us? It suggests that the members of most wealthy households don't drive luxury imports. The fact is that two out of three purchasers or leasers of foreign luxury motor vehicles in this country are not millionaires. Domestic brands have long been in favor with older millionaires. We believe this attitude is becoming more common even among younger millionaires. Why? Because the real growth in the millionaire market continues to come from the entrepreneurial segment. Entrepreneurs, as a rule, are more price-sensitive than others when it comes to acquiring motor vehicles. Successful entrepreneurs judge each expenditure in terms of productivity. They often ask themselves the impact heavy spending for motor vehicles will have upon their business's bottom line and ultimately their wealth. More often than not, they determine that investments for such items as advertising and new equipment are much more productive than very expensive motor vehicles. One can learn a great deal about affluent people by analyzing their vehicle buying habits. Our surveys reveal, for example, that most millionaires are dealer shoppers as opposed to dealer loyalists. They tend to believe that the price discounts they get through aggressive shopping and negotiating with multiple dealers are more than worth the time and energy exerted. More aggressive bargain shoppers for motor vehicles also tend to bargain hunt for other consumer products. These people also tend to plan their expenditures. Among the millionaires in our study, a large group stands out even among these bargain-hunting buyers. These are what we call used vehicle-prone shoppers. The affluent with this orientation get more satisfaction from acquiring used instead of new. They shop using a wide variety of sources, and on average they pay significantly less for their vehicles than do members of the other groups. Of all the types studied, 
used vehicle prone shoppers are the most illuminating for those interested in studying the path to affluence. Why? Because of all the groups studied, its members have the highest ratio of net worth dollars for each dollar of income. For every $1 used vehicle prone shoppers realize in income, they have $17 of net worth. They have the lowest average income of all the groups, yet on average, they have been able to accumulate more than $3 million. How did they do it? Their wealth development strategy is worth detailing. What factors explain variations in wealth accumulation? Income is a factor. People with higher incomes are expected to have higher levels of wealth. But note again that members of this group of used vehicle buyers have a significantly lower income than the average for the other groups of millionaires. About two-thirds have incomes in the high five or low six-figure range. Occupation is another factor. We have noted many times that entrepreneurs account for a disproportionately large share of the millionaires in America. Conversely, most of the other high-income producing occupations contain disproportionately smaller portions of high net worth types. These include physicians, corporate middle managers, executives, dentists, accountants, attorneys, engineers, architects, high-income producing civil servants, and professors. But there are exceptions. For example, each of these non-entrepreneurial occupations is represented in the used-vehicle-prone shopper group we are profiling. Used-vehicle-prone shoppers are unique, even among their millionaire cohorts. Being frugal is a major reason members of the used-vehicle-prone group are wealthy. Being frugal provides them with a dollar base to invest. In fact, they invest a significantly larger portion of their annual income than do any of the other types of vehicle buyers. This also applies to their contributions to pension and or annuity programs. As you may have already predicted, the used vehicle prone shopper group also contains the highest percentage of prodigious accumulators of wealth. This group is significantly more likely to agree with this statement. Our household operates on a fairly well thought out annual budget. To budget properly, one must keep records of disbursements. Here again, the used vehicle-prone shopper is more fastidious than any of the other types. More of them agree that, I know how much our family spends each year for food, clothing, and shelter. Used vehicle-prone shoppers are also bargain-oriented when it comes to buying clothing. A large percentage of them agreed with this statement. I never bought a suit that was not on sale. Used vehicle-prone shoppers are significantly more likely to be discount store patrons than other types of vehicle buyers. This is evident from their positive response to the following statement. I often buy my suits at factory outlets. This group, on average, spends considerably less for a variety of items. Used vehicle-prone shoppers spend only 59% as much as the other millionaires in our survey for a wristwatch, 83% for a suit and 88% for a pair of shoes. The majority of people do not have the ability to increase their incomes significantly. Yet income is a positive correlate of wealth. What then is our message? If you cannot increase your compensation significantly, become wealthy some other way. Do it defensively. This is how most of the used vehicle prone shoppers did it. 
they successfully inoculated themselves from contracting the high-consumption lifestyle that many of their neighbors adopted. Dr. Bill is an engineering professor who never had a total household income of more than $80,000. How did he become a millionaire? He inherited nothing. He never won the lottery or hired an investment advisor who turned a few thousand of his dollars into a fortune. His success in accumulating wealth is based on living well below his means. This professor is a classic example of a used vehicle prone shopper. But like most of those in this buyer group, he never neglected his family. He provided funds for his children's college tuitions in full and more. He and his family live in a fine home in an upper-middle-class neighborhood. In fact, about 80% of his group live in homes valued at $300,000 to $500,000. Dr. Bill's goal always was to become financially independent, but he never wanted to become an entrepreneur. Often, entrepreneurs become wealthy by taking substantial risks and by leveraging the labor and talent of dozens, even hundreds, of others. Dr. Bill was never cut out to be anything but a professor. He is not alone. Most people in this country are not the entrepreneurial type. But this does not mean that they can't become millionaires. People often confuse our message about the relationship between being wealthy and being an entrepreneur. We're not telling people to give up doing their own thing in medicine, law, accounting, and other occupations and join the ranks of the entrepreneurs in this country. Don't even consider such a change unless you really want to and are fully capable of succeeding. If you can generate a reasonably good income, say twice the norm for households in America, or sixty-five dollars to $70,000, then you may become wealthy one day if you follow the defensive strategy developed by millionaires who are used vehicle-prone shoppers. Most of Dr. Bill's non-millionaire neighbors have no household budget. They do no consumption planning. As a result, they have no restrictions on their domestic expenditures except one, the upper limits of their income. Yet these are the very types who are prone to whisper criticisms about frugal neighbors, such as Dr. Bill. Mr. Norman is an executive who lives in a $400,000 home in Dr. Bill's neighborhood. His household income last year was in excess of $150,000. But he has next to zero invested in anything other than home equity, motor vehicles, and a corporate pension plan. Mr. Norman's household has a net worth of under $200,000. Mr. Norman and his wife are each 50 years old. So are their neighbors, the used vehicle-prone shopper Dr. Bill and his wife. Bill earns only about half of what the Normans earn, but Bill's household has a net worth that is nine times greater than the Normans. Can this be possible? It's more than possible. It is probable and predictable. Great offense and poor defense translate into under-accumulation of wealth. But the Normans are not alone. There are many more under-accumulators in their neighborhood than there are prodigious accumulators like Dr. Bill and his family. UAWs like the Normans find it degrading to even think about shopping for a used car. To them, a used car is out of the question. Their neighbor, Dr. Bill, never felt degraded shopping for quality used cars. In fact, acquiring used cream puffs gives him great satisfaction. Over the years, he figures that he has saved enough buying used over new to completely fund one of his children's college and graduate school tuitions.
Where did Dr. Bill buy his latest motor vehicle, a three-year-old BMW 5 Series? From Gary, a high-income, hyper-consuming sales professional employed in the high-tech field. Gary buys only new foreign motor vehicles. If Gary is like most UAWs, he firmly believes that the buyer of his old 5 Series BMW is not as financially well-off as he. This is one of the telltale symptoms of being a UAW. UAWs usually think they have more wealth than their neighbors. Many UAWs also believe that people drive the best they can afford. Think of this situation in another way. Gary, the under-accumulator of wealth, is subsidizing Dr. Bill's motor vehicle purchases. Gary takes the brunt of the three-year depreciation and then transfers title of a fine automobile to Dr. Bill, the frugal millionaire. Also, since Gary is an employee, he cannot write off depreciation against his income tax liability. In addition, Gary has no friends, relatives, or clients in the motor vehicle business. He gets no tax write-offs, no super discounts from an uncle or aunt who owns the dealership, and no reciprocity from a client customer who is in the automobile business. He consumes motor vehicles purely for pleasure. What should Gary, Mr. Norman, and others of the UAW variety know? That they spend more for motor vehicles than the typical American millionaire. Gary's earned income is equal to that of many millionaires, yet Gary isn't a millionaire. Perhaps he compensates for this through his heavy consumption of status products. Is he trying to emulate the driving and buying habits of the chairman of the company that employs him? But the chairman is a millionaire and owns equity in the corporation. Unlike Gary, he never purchased an expensive automobile until after he was wealthy. Instead, he put much of his income back into the company via stock purchases. In contrast, Gary makes his expensive purchases in anticipation of becoming wealthy. But that day is unlikely to ever arrive. Let's turn to the fourth characteristic that stands out in our study of millionaires. Their parents did not provide economic outpatient care. Dear Dr. Stanley and Dr. Danko, I just finished reading an article about your research on millionaires. My wife has an overdue trust that her parents won't release. My mother-in-law keeps putting us off with paperwork. She seems determined not ever to release the trust to my wife. Is it possible that you have come in contact with my wife's family in your research? Or perhaps you could suggest another source that would tell us how much is in the trust. Thank you, Mr. L. S. The author of this letter and his wife urgently need money. The writer, we will call him Lamar, is the husband of a woman, we will refer to her as Mary, who comes from a wealthy family. Mary receives more than $15,000 in cash gifts annually from her parents. She has received gifts of this type, as well as other forms of help, since she and Lamar got married nearly 30 years ago. Today, she and her husband are in their early 50s. They live in a splendid neighborhood in a fine home. They are country club members. Both love to play tennis and golf. Both drive imported luxury cars. They wear fine clothes and are socially involved with several nonprofit organizations. They were previously active in raising money for the private schools their children attended. Both enjoy vintage wines gourmet foods, entertaining, high-quality jewelry, and foreign travel. 
Their neighbors think Lamar and Mary are wealthy. Some are firmly convinced that they are multi-millionaires. But looks can be deceiving. They are not wealthy. Do they at least earn a high income? No, neither the husband nor the wife earns a high income. Mary is a housewife. Lamar is an administrator at the local college. Never in the couple's long marriage have the two ever had an earned annual income in excess of $60,000, even though they have a lifestyle similar to those with incomes of at least twice theirs. Some may suggest that this couple does an outstanding job of budgeting and planning. How else can they live so high with so few dollars of income? But Lamar and Mary have never put a budget plan together. They spend in excess of their income every year. They also spend all the money Mary receives from her parents. In short, Mary and Lamar are able to live so lavishly because they are the recipients of what we call Economic Outpatient Care, EOC. Economic Outpatient Care refers to the substantial economic gifts and acts of kindness some parents give their adult children and grandchildren. Let's explore the implications of Economic Outpatient Care and how it affects the lives of those who give it and those who receive it. Many of today's distributors of EOC demonstrated significant skill at accumulating wealth earlier in their lives. They are generally frugal with regard to their own consumption and lifestyle. But some are not nearly as frugal when it comes to providing their children and grandchildren with acts of kindness. These parents feel compelled, even obligated, to provide economic support for their adult children and their families. What's the result of this largesse? Those parents who provide certain forms of EOC have significantly less wealth than those parents within the same age, income, and occupational cohorts whose adult children are economically independent. And, in general, the more dollars adult children receive, the fewer they accumulate, while those who are given fewer dollars accumulate more. Distributors of EOC often conclude that their adult children could not maintain a middle or upper-middle-class high-consumption lifestyle without being subsidized. Consequently, an increasing number of families headed by the sons and daughters of the affluent are playing the role of successful members of the high-income-producing upper-middle-class, yet their lifestyle is a facade. These sons and daughters of the affluent are high-volume consumers of status products and services, from their traditional colonial homes in upscale suburbs to their imported luxury motor vehicles, from their country club affiliations to the private schools they select for their children, they are living proof of one simple rule regarding EOC. It is much easier to spend other people's money than dollars that are self-generated. EOC is widespread in America. More than 46% of the affluent in America give at least $15,000 worth of EOC annually to their adult children and or grandchildren. Nearly half the adult children of the affluent who are under 35 years of age receive annual cash gifts from their parents. The incidence of giving declines as adult children grow older. About one in five adult children in their mid-forties to mid-fifties receives such gifts. Please note that these estimates are based on surveys of the adult children of the affluent and that gift receivers are likely to understate both the incidence and size of their gifts. Interestingly, when surveyed, gift givers report a substantially higher incidence and dollar amount of gift giving than their adult children who are the recipients. 
Much EOC is distributed in lump sums or erratic patterns. For example, affluent parents and grandparents are likely to give their children entire coin collections, stamp collections, and similar gifts in one transfer. About one in four affluent parents has already given such collections to his or her adult children or grandchildren. Similarly, payment of medical and dental expenses is often precipitated by a grandchild's need for orthodontal work or plastic surgery. About 45% of the affluent have provided for the medical and dental expenses of their adult children and or grandchildren. During the next 10 years, the affluent population in America, defined as those with a net worth of a million dollars or more, will increase five to seven times faster than the household population in general. Directly paralleling this growth, the affluent population will produce significantly more children and grandchildren than in the past. Economic outpatient care will increase greatly during this period. The number of estates in the million-dollar or more range will increase by 246% during the next decade. These estates will be valued at a total of more than $2 trillion. But nearly the same amount will be distributed before millionaire parents become decedents. Much of this wealth will be distributed by so-called predecedent affluent parents and grandparents to their children and or grandchildren. The costs to provide outpatient care will also increase substantially in the future. Private school tuition, foreign luxury automobiles, homes in fashionable suburbs, cosmetic medical and dental services, law school tuition, and many other EOC items are increasing at rates that greatly exceed the general cost of living index. In addition, as our population ages, more and more affluent parents and grandparents are reaching the age of estate tax realization. Widows and widowers especially are becoming more aware that the government can take 55% or more of their estate via estate tax mandates. Thus, as the affluent grow older, they will increase the size and incidence of their EOC in order to reduce the tax burden on their estates. Let's explore further some of the economic outpatient care that Lamar and Mary have received. Mary's mother placed a sizable down payment on the couple's home. Nearly six in ten affluent parents who have adult children tell us that they have provided their children with financial assistance in purchasing a home. Mary's mother also made the couple's mortgage payments. Note that 17% of the millionaires we have interviewed indicated that they have made such payments. What happened when the couple traded up to a more expensive home? Mary's mother once again subsidized the purchase. Lamar spent nearly four years in graduate school. During that time, he received two degrees. Today, Lamar is a college administrator. But given his annual salary of less than $60,000, it's still hard for Mary and him to make ends meet. Even with the $15,000 his mother-in-law provides each year, their income is not high enough to support their upper-middle-class lifestyle. What is so interesting about Mary and Lamar's $60,000 annual income level is that they are not alone. About 30% of the households in America that live in homes valued at $300,000 have annual household earned incomes of $60,000 or less. Is it because of creative budgeting? Or could it be a result of widespread economic outpatient care? For the most part, it's because of UAWs on EOC.
But what will happen to Marion Lamar after Mother is no longer alive? Obviously, this is a major concern to this couple. Unfortunately, we are not fortune-tellers, so we were not able to tell them how much Mother had in trust for her daughter. We wish them good luck. It will not take long for Marion Lamar to consume even a good-sized inheritance. They are already anticipating this economic windfall. A bigger home, a vacation home, and around-the-world travel are on the horizon. Adults who sit around waiting for the next dose of economic outpatient care typically are not very productive. Cash gifts are too often earmarked for consumption and the support of an unrealistically high lifestyle. Does this mean that all adult children of affluent parents are destined to become Marys and Lamars? Absolutely not. In fact, stated as a statistical probability, the more wealth parents accumulate the more economically disciplined their adult children are likely to be. Note that America's millionaires are more than five times more likely than the average household to have a son or a daughter graduate from medical school. They are more than four times more likely to have a child who is a law school graduate. Paying for an education is the equivalent to teaching your children how to fish. Mary's mother taught her daughter and son-in-law something else. She taught them how to spend. She taught them to look upon her as a fish-dispensing machine. There are many forms of economic outpatient care. Some have a strong positive influence on the productivity of the recipients. These include subsidizing your children's education and, more important, earmarking gifts so they can start or enhance a business. Many self-made millionaire entrepreneurs know this intuitively. Unlike Mary's mother, they prefer to give their offspring private stock, which cannot be readily traded in for a new foreign luxury automobile. Conversely, what is the effect of cash gifts that are knowingly earmarked for consumption and the propping up of a certain lifestyle? We find that the giving of such gifts is the single most significant factor that explains lack of productivity among the adult children of the affluent. All too often, such temporary gifts affect the recipient's psyche. Cash gifts earmarked for consumption dampen one's initiative and productivity. They become habit-forming. These gifts then must be extended throughout most of the recipient's life. It is important here to emphasize a point made throughout the program. Not all adult children of the affluent become UAWs. Those who do tend to have parents who heavily subsidize their children's standard of living but many other sons and daughters of affluent parents become PAWs. The evidence suggests this happens when their parents are frugal and well-disciplined and instill these values, as well as independence, in their children. This leads us to the fifth important characteristic of the millionaires in our survey. Their adult children are economically self-sufficient. Most affluent parents who have adult children want to reduce the size of their estate before they pass away. Certainly this decision makes sense, given that the alternative is to leave their children with a significant estate tax liability. The decision to share their wealth with their children is easy. The difficult decision is how to divide the capital. Affluent parents who have younger children usually believe that the distribution of their wealth will never be a problem. They assume their assets will be distributed equally. Those parents with four children, for example, typically state that their wealth will be distributed equally among their children, 25% to each. 
This simple distribution formula becomes more complex as the children mature. Parents of adult children are likely to find that some of their children have a greater need for substantial financial gifts than others. Who should get more? Who should get less? These are questions everyone must answer. Nonetheless, affluent parents are likely to benefit from several important research findings. Parents with non-working adult daughters and temporarily unemployed adult sons have a high propensity to provide these children with heavy doses of economic outpatient care, EOC. These children are also likely to receive a disproportionately large portion of their parents' estates. The more economically successful offspring are likely to receive smaller levels of EOC and inheritance. Many of the most highly productive sons and daughters receive no wealth transfers whatsoever. Yet, as we have discussed, that's one reason they're wealthy. Unemployed adult children are significantly more likely to receive annual cash gifts from their parents than are their working siblings. In fact, our research findings regarding the incidence as well as the actual dollar amounts of gifts received are likely understated, since about one in four male children, 25 to 35 years of age, resides with his affluent parents, and some respondents did not perceive this living situation as gift-giving or receiving. Male adult children, by the way, are more than twice as likely to live at home than female adult children. Often the unemployed have a history of being in and out of work. Others are so-called professional students. Typically, their parents view these children as needing the money more than their brothers and sisters do, now and in the future. Thus, the unemployed are more than twice as likely as their working brothers and sisters to receive inheritances. Often the adult child in this category has close emotional as well as economic ties to his parent. He is significantly more likely to live in close proximity to his parents, down the street perhaps, or even in the same home. It is not unusual, especially among unemployed adult male children, for the child to act as the household handyman, assistant, or errand boy. Unemployment during the early stages of adulthood is related to unemployment at later stages in life. Many unemployed middle-aged sons and daughters receive direct cash subsidies, often annually. Further, the incidence of unemployment is associated with larger and more frequent gifts. These adult children are also more likely than their brothers and sisters who are employed to receive inheritances in the form of personal real estate. The affluent who have successful adult children have given us much valuable information on how they raised them. Here are some of their guidelines. 1. Never tell children that their parents are wealthy. Why is it that many of the adult children of UAWs are more likely to earn high incomes than to accumulate wealth? We believe one of the major reasons is that as children they were constantly told their parents were wealthy. Adult UAWs tend to be the product of parents who lived in ways they thought appropriate for wealthy people to act. They live the high-status, high-consumption lifestyle so popular in America today. It's no wonder their sons and daughters attempt to emulate them. Conversely, adult PAWs, whose parents were wealthy, have told us time and time again, I never knew my dad was wealthy until I became executor of his estate. He never looked it. 2. No matter how wealthy you are, teach your children discipline and frugality. As you may recall, we profiled Dr. North, a wealthy man whose adult children live frugal, well-disciplined lives. Dr. North detailed how he and his wife raised their children. Simply stated, they taught by example. 
their children were exposed to credible role models whose lives were characterized by their discipline and frugality. Dr. North said it best. Kids are very smart. They will not follow rules that their parents themselves do not follow. My wife and I were well-disciplined parents. We lived the rules. We taught by example. The children learned by example. Dr. North received a birthday gift from one of his daughters when she was 12. It was a poster titled, The King's Rules. On it, his daughter wrote down the rules that her father preached to his children. Dr. North still keeps this poster in his office, prominently displayed behind his desk. What were some of the rules Dr. North's 12-year-old daughter listed on the poster? Be tough, life is. In other words, there is no promise of a rose garden. Never say, poor me, or feel sorry for yourself. Don't walk on the back of your shoes. Waste not, want not. In other words, don't abuse your belongings. They will last longer. Close the front door. Don't waste your parents' money letting the heat out. Always put things back where they belong. Flush. Say yes to those who need help before they ask. Three, assure that your children won't realize you're affluent until after they have established a mature, disciplined, and adult lifestyle and profession. Once again, Dr. North said it best. I have set up trusts for my children, some estate tax advantages, but my plan will not distribute money to my children until they are 40 years of age or older, because in this way my money will have little effect on their way of life at that age. They will have already adopted their own lifestyle. Dr. North also told us that he never gives his children cash gifts, not even now that they are adults. He said, Cash gives them too many options, especially in the case of young children. Media, especially TV, controls the values of our young, just like they try to control what we think is funny with canned laughter. There's too much emphasis on consumption. I have never just given cash for this reason. What I have always told my children is, if you need to make a major purchase, you first must fund a good bit of it yourself. 4. Minimize discussions of the items that each child and grandchild will inherit or receive as gifts. Never make light of verbal promises. Billy, you'll get the house, Bob the summer cottage, Barbara the silver, especially in a group setting, especially when consuming alcohol. You may too easily forget or confuse who gets what, but the kids are not likely to forget. They will hold you and their siblings responsible for being shorted. False promises often lead to discord and conflicts. 5. Never give cash or other significant gifts to your adult children as part of a negotiation strategy. Give because of love, even obligation and kindness. Adult children often lose their respect and love for parents who submit to high-pressure negotiating tactics. Coercion of this type is often the product of the manner in which parents negotiate with their young children. Even pre-teens are taught the benefits of Johnny got a bike so I should get a wagon. Johnny and his brother should receive symbols of love and kindness, but instead they learn that mom and dad must be pushed, squeezed, and coerced into giving. The boys may begin to view each other as adversaries. 6. Stay out of your adult children's family matters. Please note, parents, that your vision of the ideal lifestyle may be diametrically opposed to that of your adult son or daughter. 
as well as that of your son-in-law or daughter-in-law. Adult children resent interference from their parents. Let them run their own lives. Ask permission even to give advice. Ask permission also when contemplating giving significant gifts to your children. 7. Don't try to compete with your children. Never boast about how much money you have accumulated. This sends a confusing message. Often, children can't compete with their parents on this basis and do not really want to. You don't have to boast of your achievements. Your children are wise enough to appreciate what you have accomplished. Never start a conversation with, When I was your age, I already had. To many successful, achievement-oriented children of the affluent, accumulating money is not the superordinate goal. Instead, they want to be well-educated, to be respected by their peers, and to occupy a high-status position. For many of these sons and daughters, the variations in income and wealth among occupations are much less important than they are for their parents. 8. Always remember that your children are individuals. They differ from each other in motivation and achievement. Try as you may via economic outpatient care, inequalities will exist. Will economic outpatient care reduce these differences? It's unlikely. Subsidizing underachievers tends to enhance differences in wealth, not reduce them. This, in turn, can cause discord, since high-achieving brothers and sisters may resent such gift-giving. 9. Emphasize your children's achievements, no matter how small, not their or your symbols of success. Teach your children to achieve, not just to consume. Earning to enhance spending should not be one's ultimate goal. This is what Ken's father always taught him. Majoring in finance and marketing, Ken received an MBA with distinction. His father was a physician and a full-fledged member of the PAW group. He often told Ken, I am not impressed with what people own, but I am impressed with what they achieve. I am proud to be a physician. Always strive to be the best in your field. Don't chase money. If you are the best in your field, money will find you. What was it that Ken's father admired most about his son? He said, First, that I worked part-time as a busboy in a pancake restaurant throughout my high school years. Second, that I never asked him for money. He volunteered to lend me a few thousand dollars to start a business right out of undergraduate school. Third, I sold the business with enough profits to fund my graduate school education completely and never had to ask for a subsidy. Ken's focus today is on achievement. He is a key executive with a major communications and entertainment corporation. He is also an astute investor in both commercial real estate and quality public corporations. Also, like his father, Ken is a prodigious accumulator of wealth. He lives in a modest home and drives used cars. 10. Tell your children that there are a lot of things more valuable than money. Good health, longevity, Happiness, a loving family, self-reliance, fine friends. If you have five, you're a rich man. Reputation, respect, integrity, honesty, and a history of achievements. We now come to the sixth of the seven factors that figure prominently in our survey of millionaires. They are proficient in targeting market opportunities. Why is it that you're not wealthy? 
Perhaps it's because you are not pursuing opportunities that exist in the marketplace. There are significant business opportunities for those who target the affluent, the children of the affluent, and the widows and widowers of the affluent. Very often those who supply the affluent become wealthy themselves. Conversely, many people, including business owners, self-employed professionals, sales professionals, and even some salaried workers, never produce high incomes. Perhaps it's because their clients and customers have little or no money. But, you may say, you have told us that the affluent are often frugal. Why target those who are not big spenders? Why focus on people who are sensitive to the price variations in products and services? The affluent, especially the self-made affluent, are frugal and price-sensitive concerning many consumer products and services. But they are not nearly as price-sensitive when it comes to purchasing investment advice and services, accounting services, tax advice, legal services, medical and dental care for themselves and family members, educational products, and homes. Since the majority of the affluent are self-employed business owners and managers, they are also purchasers of industrial products and services. They are consumers of everything from office space to computer software. Also, the affluent are not at all frugal when it comes to buying products and services for their children and grandchildren. Nor are the children of the affluent frugal when it comes to spending the substantial gifts of cash that their parents and grandparents give them. In the next decade, there will be more wealth in this country than ever before. Opportunities to serve the wealthy will be greater than ever. Consider these facts about the American economy. In 1996, approximately 3.5 million households in America, out of a total of 100 million households, had a net worth of $1 million or more. Millionaire households accounted for nearly half of all private wealth in America. During the 10-year period from 1996 through 2005, wealth held by American households is expected to grow nearly six times faster than the household population. By the year 2005, the total net worth of American households will be $27.7 trillion, or more than 20% higher than in 1996. By 2005, the millionaire household population is expected to reach approximately 5.6 million. At that time, the majority of the private wealth in America, $16.3 trillion of the $27.7 trillion, or approximately 59%, will be held by the 5.3% of households that have a net worth of a million dollars or more. During the period from 1996 through 2005, it is estimated that 692,493 decedents will leave estates worth a million dollars or more. This translates into $2.1 trillion. About one-third of this amount will be distributed to the decedent's spouses, in 80% of these cases widows. Widows will receive an estimated $560.2 billion, while the children of decedents will receive nearly $400 billion. This translates into $189,484 for each of the estimated 2,077,490 children of decedents. People who receive wealth from the estates of affluent parents have a significantly higher propensity to spend than others in their income-slash-age cohort. Additionally, to minimize estate taxes, many affluent parents reduce the size of their estates by transferring much of their wealth to their offspring before death. During the 10-year period 1996 to 2005, 
it is forecasted that living parents and grandparents will give their adult children and grandchildren more than $1 trillion. These gifts will be in various forms, including cash, collectibles, homes, cars, commercial real estate, public securities, and mortgage payments. This $1 trillion in gifts translates into more than $600,000 for each child of the affluent. What businesses and professions are likely to benefit from the affluent? There are many. Those who are specialists in solving the problems of the affluent and their heirs should be in great demand during the next 20 years. A father recently asked us about the ideal occupation for his son. At the time of this discussion, his son was a second-year college student with a straight-A average. How did the father respond when we suggested that his son consider becoming an attorney? He said there were too many attorneys. We replied that there were too many law school graduates. There is always a demand for high-grade attorneys. Attorneys who can generate new business are in even higher demand. The father asked about the areas of law that would be best suited for his son. We described three to him. The first area we recommended was estate law. Estate attorneys will likely generate more than $25 billion in revenue from servicing estates in the million-dollar or more range during the 1996 to 2005 period. This figure is greater than the net income generated by all law partnerships for all services in 1994. Which is the number one income-consuming category among the affluent? Income tax. The affluent in the $200,000 and more annual realized income category account for only about 1% of U.S. households but pay 25% of the tax on personal income. They will want to become better at realizing less income in the future. What will happen in the year 2005 when millionaire households will control 59% of America's personal wealth? The government will likely place increased pressure on the affluent, possibly by creating innovative ways to tax wealth in addition to income. This prospect, according to our surveys of millionaires, is foremost on the minds of the affluent. We believe that in the next 20 years, the affluent will have to use every option within the law to remain affluent. It is a segment of our economy that will be under siege by the liberal politician and his friend, the taxman. Surely the affluent will readily spend their money for legal advice that will help them withstand the siege. The tax attorney will prove to be an integral part of the defense. Thus, the second area of law we recommended to the father for his son was tax law. The third area of law we recommended was immigration law. Attorneys who specialize in immigration law are likely to benefit from predicted developments in this area. For example, it will become progressively more difficult to immigrate to this country and become a naturalized citizen. At the same time, the demand for American citizenship will increase greatly, especially among affluent foreigners. Consider how millionaire entrepreneurs and advocates of free enterprise living in Taiwan feel about their future. China also wants their capital and country. China wants the Philippines for its oil. Who can guess how the Chinese government will treat the affluent population of a country it acquires? China is a real threat to many affluent people who live within its influence. Many of these people will seek American citizenship. Immigration attorneys will surely benefit from this trend. Many specialists will benefit from the enormous number of dollars that the affluent population will spend for health care in the next decade. 
A growing number of wealthy people will pay for the medical and dental expenses of their adult children and grandchildren. We estimate that in the next 10 years, millionaires will spend in excess of $52 billion for the medical and dental care of their adult children and grandchildren. Most of these medical and dental expenses are not covered by health care insurance programs. Skilled health care specialists, who prefer to deal directly with individual payers and not with bureaucratic third-party organizations, will be especially important in providing these uncovered services. A growing number of healthcare professionals are already focusing on this affluent, self-payer market. Those professionals with the highest skills and corresponding reputations can most readily capitalize on this trend. Often they can demand and receive fees that are higher than any insurance company would be willing to pay. The affluent will often pay directly to the healthcare professional or organization. This way they avoid the possibility of paying gift tax on such distributions. Also, many affluent people will pay for their own elective health care services. Not all intergenerational gifts are in the form of cash or its equivalents. Gifts to adult children and grandchildren are often in the form of private family businesses, coin collections, stamp collections, gems and precious metals, timberland, farms, rights to oil and gas properties, personal real estate, commercial real estate, gun collections, porcelains, antiques, art, motor vehicles, furniture, and the like. Often the recipients of these items have little or no interest in them and want to transform them into cash immediately. They will need experts to advise them of the true value of the gifts or how to sell them, manage them even for short periods of time, or enhance their value. Specialists who will benefit include appraisers and auctioneers, coin and stamp dealers, Pawnbrokers who can promote themselves as specialists in purchasing estate jewelry, diamonds, precious metals, collectibles, and so on. And real estate management professionals providing property management of single or multiple family dwellings, maintenance services, rent collection, and turnkey cleanup. More than 40% of America's affluent pay for their grandchildren's private grade school and or high school tuition. Coupled with the rapid growth of the affluent population, this translates into several million students whose tuition to attend private school will be subsidized within the next 10 years. Given these facts, the demand for private school facilities and private school teachers, counselors, and tutors will likely accelerate. At the same time, tuition and related expenses should increase significantly. Why? Because affluent grandparents are bidding up the cost of private school tuition. Since many of their adult children do not have to pay for the services from which their children benefit, the parents are relatively insensitive to the escalating cost of a private school education. Organizations and specialists who will benefit include proprietors and teachers at private schools and in specialized areas such as music, drama, the arts, special education and learning disability programs, career counseling and tutorials. As stated previously, attorneys play a pivotal role in the transfer of wealth between generations. Accountants are also important in this regard. These professionals often serve as key advisors to the affluent. Advice in this context extends beyond the normal core of accounting and legal services. These professionals are relied on for their insights into how best to distribute substantial financial and other gifts to children and grandchildren. Clients often view these accountants as their first line of defense against paying substantial gift and estate taxes. 
they are often called upon to be co-executors of the estates of their affluent clients. It is not unusual for co-executors in these situations to receive a percentage of the estates of their clients. This is one way the affluent reward these trusted advisors for a lifetime of sage advice. More than half the affluent population will provide their offspring with financial assistance in purchasing a home. This figure actually understates the incidence of such outpatient care because often other substantial financial gifts not earmarked for specific use are used for home purchases and related expenses. Those who receive home acquisition subsidies from their relatives are often less sensitive to the variations in home prices than the non-subsidized. As always, our data suggests that it is easier to spend other people's money. This trend should benefit many of those who are employed in the residential housing and mortgage lending businesses. Specialists who will benefit include home-building contractors, mortgage lenders, remodeling and renovation contractors, residential real estate developers and agents, and retailers of paint, wall coverings, decorating products, alarm and security systems, and providers of interior design and decorating services. Those are some areas where opportunities appear to lie, which lead us to the last of the seven factors that characterize millionaires. They chose the right occupation. About ten years ago, a reporter from a national news magazine called. She asked the question we are most frequently asked. Who are the affluent? By now, you probably can predict the answer. Most of the affluent in America are business owners, including self-employed professionals. Twenty percent of the affluent households in America are headed by retirees. Of the remaining 80%, more than two-thirds are headed by self-employed owners of businesses. In America, fewer than one in five households, or about 18%, is headed by a self-employed business owner or professional. But these self-employed people are four times more likely to be millionaires than those who work for others. The reporter followed with the next logical question. What types of businesses do millionaires own? Our answer was the same one we give everyone. You can't predict if someone is a millionaire by the type of business he's in. After 20 years of studying millionaires across a wide spectrum of industries, we have concluded that the character of the business owner is more important in predicting his level of wealth than the classification of his business. We've gone out of our way to emphasize that there are no sure steps one can take to become wealthy. Too often, reporters ignore the facts. They sensationalize and twist our research findings. Yes, you are more likely to become affluent if you're self-employed. But what some of these reporters don't tell you is that most business owners are not millionaires and will never come close to becoming wealthy. We do tell reporters that some industries tend to be more profitable than others. Thus, those who own businesses in the more profitable industries tend, by definition, to realize more income. But just because you're in a profitable industry does not guarantee that your business will be highly productive. And even if your business is highly productive, you may never become wealthy. Why? Because even if you earn big profits, you may spend even bigger amounts on non-business-related consumer goods and services. You may have been divorced three times or have a habit of gambling on the horses. You may not have a pension plan or own any shares in quality, publicly traded corporations. Perhaps you feel little need to accumulate wealth. 
money in your mind may be the most easily renewable resource. If you think it is, you may be a spender and never an investor. But what if you're frugal and a conscientious investor and you own a business that is profitable? In this case, you are likely to become wealthy. An industry label does not make the business owner wealthy. It takes talent and discipline to generate profits and ultimately wealth. That is why we are offended by people who tell the American public, Just buy my educational study-at-home kit and your new business venture will be a success. Start your own business today. You will be wealthy tomorrow. I did it in this industry. You can do it too. It's so easy. Again, it's not the kit, not the idea, not the industry. For example, the profitability data for hardware lumber retail establishments 25 years ago never got us excited. They didn't convince us to invest in a business of this type. But think what the founders of the highly profitable Home Depot did. They reinvented the industry. They did not allow industry standards for profits, sales volume, or overhead to dictate how they operated their business and invested their money. These founders had tremendous talent, discipline, and courage. They became wealthy and helped make a lot of their employees and other investors financially independent. Most people who make it big in business set their own very high standards. Fewer than one in five millionaire business owners turns his business over to his children to own and operate. Why? Give credit to wealthy parents. They know the odds of succeeding in business. They understand that most businesses are highly susceptible to competition, counter-consumer trends, high overhead, and other uncontrollable variables. So what do these millionaires advise their children to do? They encourage their children to become self-employed professionals, such as physicians, attorneys, engineers, architects, accountants, and dentists. As stated earlier, millionaire couples with children are five times more likely to send their children to medical school than other parents in America, and about four times more likely to send them to law school. The affluent know the risks and the odds of succeeding or failing in business. They also seem to understand that only a small minority of self-employed professionals fail to make a profit in any given year, and that the profitability of most professional service firms is substantially higher than the average for small businesses in general. Let's discuss the other attributes associated with being a self-employed professional. For a moment, assume you are Mr. Carl Johnson, the sole proprietor of Johnson Coal. You're the owner of one of the 26 coal mining businesses that made a profit last year out of the 76 in the industry. Not long ago, 717 sole proprietors were still in your industry. More than 9 of every 10 made a profit. Now the industry has been reduced in number by 90%. But you're tough, you're resourceful, and you're intelligent. In spite of the withdrawal of most of the other operators, you hung in there. Now you're reaping the benefits. You made a net profit of $600,000 last year, and you're doing well this year. Now you have two children in college who are outstanding students. You begin to ask yourself some questions. Should I encourage my David and Christy to become involved in the coal mining business? Should I encourage them to eventually take over my parents' coal mine? Is coal mining the best place for my children? Most of the millionaire business owners we have interviewed would not encourage their children to take over such a business. This is especially true in cases in which the children are outstanding students. They would suggest that David and Christy, the young scholars, 
consider other avenues. Most businesses today require some investment in land, equipment, and buildings. The Johnson coal mining business owns mountains that contain coal. It owns millions of dollars worth of equipment. It employs many miners and must constantly upgrade the safety of its operation. It must conform to OSHA's mandates. It must deal with the uncontrollable price the market places on a ton of coal. It must constantly be vigilant about competitors who are trying to steal its customers. It must keep a careful watch on changes in America's energy policy. It also must keep its workers happy and safe. It must constantly deal with the possibility of a mine cave-in and halted production. Finally, the operation is in a fixed location. Mountains can't be moved to a warmer climate or closer to a more efficient railroad operation. What happens if there is a prolonged railroad strike? Ask yourself these questions. If you do, you will soon realize you're in a precarious position. So what if you run a superior operation? The uncontrollable factors outlined above can kill your business. Given these considerations, that $600,000 you earned last year seems smaller. How many $600,000 years are in your future? What if the uncontrollable factors drive you bankrupt next year? Can you use your skills to teach coal mining at the technical university? Probably not. Your skills are more hands-on, not intellectual. So what will you advise David and Christie to do? If you're like most successful business owners, you will advise them to become professionals. So it is with the affluent in America. The first-generation affluent are typically entrepreneurs. They beat the odds. Their businesses succeed, and they become affluent. Much of their success depends on their living a frugal existence while building their businesses. Luck is often involved, and most who succeed understand that circumstances could have gone against them. Their children will have it better. They will not have to take significant risks. They will be well-educated. They will become physicians, attorneys, and accountants. Their capital is their intellect. But unlike their parents, they will postpone entering the job market until they are in their late 20s or even their early 30s. And most likely, they will adopt an upper-middle-class lifestyle as soon as they start working, a much different lifestyle than their frugal parents had when they started their businesses. Often their children are not frugal. How could they be? They have high-status positions that require higher levels of consumption and thus lower levels of investing. As a consequence, they may require economic outpatient care. In spite of earning high incomes, as most professionals do, they are obligated to spend. Thus, because there are corresponding high levels of household spending requirements for many high-income-producing categories of business, it is difficult to predict levels of wealth based on the income characteristics of various types of businesses. A recent article by Fleming Meeks and David S. Fomdiller in Forbes had an interesting lead. Dull companies with steady earnings growth may not make for stimulating cocktail party chatter, but over the long term they make the best investments. Later in the same article, the authors mention that in the long run, high-tech companies can, and often do, fall down on the performance scale. Typically, it's the companies in what we call the dull normal industries that consistently perform well for their owners. Forbes lists several top-performing small businesses that have had great endurance for the past 10 years. Some of the industries represented include wallboard manufacturing, building material manufacturing, electronic stores, 
prefab housing, and automobile parts. We recently developed our own list of businesses that are owned by millionaires. Here's a brief sample from that list. Advertising specialty distributors, ambulance service, auctioneer or appraiser, cafeteria owner, consulting geologist, fundraiser, heat transfer equipment manufacturer, janitorial services contractor, mobile home park owner, pest control services, rice farmer, sandblasting contractor. No, these industries don't sound very exciting. But typically, it's these mundane categories of businesses that produce wealth for their owners. Often, dull normal industries don't attract a great deal of competition, and demand for their offerings is not usually subject to rapid downturns. Why do people operate their own businesses? First, most successful business owners will tell you that they have tremendous freedom. They are their own bosses. Also, they tell us that self-employment is less risky than working for others. A professor once asked a group of 60 MBA students who were executives of public corporations this question. What is risk? One student replied, being an entrepreneur. His fellow students agreed. Then the professor answered his own question with a quote from an entrepreneur. What is risk? Having one source of income. Employees are at risk. They have a single source of income. What about the entrepreneur who sells janitorial services to your employers? He has hundreds and hundreds of customers, hundreds and hundreds of sources of income. Actually, there is considerable financial risk in being a business owner. But business owners have a set of beliefs that helps them reduce their risk, or at least their perceived risk. I'm in control of my own destiny. Risk is working for a ruthless employer. I can solve any problem. The only way to become a CEO is to own the company. There are no limits on the amount of income I can make. I get stronger and wiser every day by facing risk and adversity. To be a business owner also requires that you have the desire to be self-employed. If you hate the thought of being outside the corporate environment, entrepreneurship may not be your calling. The most successful business owners we have interviewed have one characteristic in common. They all enjoy what they do. They all take pride in going it alone. Most successful business owners had some knowledge or experience with their chosen industry before they ever opened their own businesses. Larry, for example, worked for more than a dozen years selling printing services. He was the top performer for his employer. But after growing tired of the constant fear that his employer would go bankrupt, he considered opening his own printing company. He sought our advice in this regard. We asked Larry a simple question. What's the number one thing that printing companies need? He immediately responded, More business, more revenue, more customers. Thus, Larry answered his own question. He did start his own business, but not his own printing company. He became a self-employed broker of printing services. He now represents several outstanding printing firms and receives a commission on every sale he makes. His business has little overhead. Before starting his own business, Larry told us he did not have the courage to be an entrepreneur. He told us that every time he even thought about going it alone, he encountered fear. Larry believed that the self-employed were fearless, that fear never entered their minds. 
we had to help Larry adjust his thinking. We began by explaining that his definition of courage was wrong. How do we define courage? Courage is behaving in a way that conjures up fear. Yes, Larry, courageous people, entrepreneurs, recognize the fear in what they are doing. But they deal with it. They overcome their fears. That's why they are successful. Fear abounds in America. But according to our research, who has less fear and worry? Would you guess it's the person with the $5 million trust account or the self-made entrepreneur worth several million dollars? Typically, it's the entrepreneur, the person who deals with risk every day, who tests his or her courage every day. In this way, he learns to conquer fear. We saved the following case study for last because in our minds it encapsulates the differences between PAWs and UAWs. Throughout this program, we have stressed that the members of these two groups have distinctly different needs. PAWs need to achieve, to create wealth, to become financially independent, to build something from scratch. UAWs more often need to display a high-status lifestyle. What happens when members of these two groups attempt to occupy the same space at the same time? As the following case study demonstrates, the likely result is conflict. Mr. W. is a self-made millionaire with a net worth conservatively estimated to be over $30 million. A typical PAW, Mr. W., is the owner of several companies that produce industrial equipment, testing instruments, and specialty gauges. He is also involved in many other entrepreneurial activities, including real estate ventures. Mr. W. lives in a middle-class neighborhood surrounded by people who have only a small fraction of the wealth he has accumulated. He and his wife drive full-size General Motors sedans. His living and consuming habits are quite middle-class. He never wears a tie or suit to work. Mr. W. enjoys venturing into, as he calls it, luxury real estate. I make money outside of the equipment business, in real estate. God continues to make more people, but he doesn't make any more land. You will make money if you're smart, and you're choosy where you pick the spot. Mr. W. is very picky indeed. He buys property outright or in partnership only when the price is right. He typically purchases property or a part ownership from an owner and or a developer who is in great need of financial assistance. Recently, he uncovered yet another superior investment opportunity in Sun Country. Some poor guy was putting together a luxury high-rise condominium. For a builder to build, he had to have 50% of the units sold. So I went in and made a deal with him. I bought all of the units of the same style, floor plan, with a lot of leverage, and he got his money. And he built, because I bought all the one style. Anybody who wanted to buy that style had to see me. Like Monopoly, nobody else competes with me. I sell them all right out. All but one. But Mr. W. does not even keep the one remaining unit for very long. He and his family use it for a short vacation or two. Occasionally, he invites his close friends to use it. Otherwise, he rents the remaining unit until it is sold. Why doesn't Mr. W. maintain a more permanent presence in these condominium complexes? It's not his style. Most of the people who buy Mr. W.'s vacation condominiums are upper-middle-class UAWs. Mr. W. and many of the buyers of his condominium units have had a number of disagreements. In several of the complexes where Mr. W. previously bought units, 
His buyers passed so many restrictive covenants that Mr. W. was uncomfortable even spending vacation time in his condominiums. Thus he felt compelled to sell that one remaining unit in each of these complexes. I have a dog. Call him the six-figure doggy. I have sold several condominiums because the people passed dog laws. They told me, you know, you've got to get rid of the dog. I'll sell an entire building before I get rid of my dog. Mr. W. anticipated that the status-conscious buyers of his latest venture would also be insensitive to his desire to have a dog. So before construction on the complex was even started, he listed his dog in the building's declaration. It stated that Mr. W. and his family would have the right to have a dog with them when they were in residence. All the buyers, according to Mr. W., were given copies of the declaration. Thus, they were all aware of Mr. W.'s right to have a dog in the complex. Not one owner objected at the time they purchased property. But shortly after the complex was completely sold out, excluding Mr. W.'s last available unit, the owners banded together and formed an action committee. Its purpose was to develop and enforce an expanded list of restrictive covenants. Certainly these new covenants would not restrict the rights of Mr. W. and his dog. After all, these rights were specified in the original declaration. The Action Committee passed a dog law. It sidestepped the original declaration concerning dogs and stated that dogs would be allowed on the complex with certain restrictions if they weighed less than 15 pounds. So much for doggy rights and original declarations. Mr. W. felt that this was a subterfuge to encourage him to sell out. His six-figure doggy weighed 30 pounds. He felt that even if the dog dieted, it would not come into compliance. Mr. W. was particularly disturbed that he was never allowed to cast a vote for or against the dog-related covenant. Nonetheless, he was determined to keep his dog in spite of the covenant. After all, he had been a major investor in the building before construction even began. The action committee wrote me a letter and stated that I had to get rid of the dog because it was over 15 pounds. So I went to one of their meetings. I complained about their voting system. I had no representation. Several weeks later, Mr. W. received a letter that demanded that he remove his dog. It also stated that legal action would be initiated if he did not comply with the dog-related covenant. Two more letters followed. Each contained statements that were even more threatening than the first. Mr. W. was not impressed with these requests. The author of the letters was the chairman of the action committee. He was also an attorney. But as Mr. W. discovered, the chairman was not licensed to practice law in the state where the complex was located. Thus, Mr. W. promptly ignored each of the action committee's demands. However, Mr. W. and his family began to feel that they were out of place even just vacationing at this condominium complex. Was the action committee using the dog as leverage to evict his entire family? Mr. W. was convinced this was the real issue. He and his family were not what some would consider to be beautiful people. In contrast, the complex was filled with, in Mr. W.'s parlance, the best scrubbed condominium owners one could ever imagine. Mr. W. was growing increasingly angry with the members of the action committee. He felt that its members were going out of their way to be rude to him. He was especially annoyed that the chairman of the committee had embarrassed his wife in front of several other condominium owners. Mr. W. devised a plan. At a meeting of the condominium owners, at which all the members of the action committee were present, 
Mr. W. stood up and introduced himself. I'm the guy that you have been sending letters to about our dog. I have given your proposal some careful consideration. I've decided I'm not going to get rid of my dog, nor am I going to sell my condominium. This statement drew anticipated boos and hisses from the audience. After gaining the undivided attention of his targeted audience, he outlined his counterproposal to turn his condominium unit over to his company's profit-sharing and pension plan and allow assembly line employees to use the unit as a vacation resort 52 weeks a year. He asked his audience, Would that be okay with all you folks? Numerous members of the audience moaned. They were undoubtedly envisioning Mr. W.'s blue-collar employees invading their space 52 weeks a year. Some attendees shouted out, Keep the dog! Keep the dog! The chairman of the action committee proposed that a committee meeting be held immediately in the adjoining conference room. Five minutes after this behind-closed-doors meeting, the committee members filed back into the room. The chairman told the audience of condominium owners that the action committee had made a decision. After reviewing all the elements of this situation, the action committee recommends that the W's be allowed to keep their dog. I ask that the covenant be so amended. All in favor? Not long after this brilliant victory, the W's sold their condominium unit. They did so because, as Mr. W observed, I don't want to live in a building with people who don't like dogs. According to Mr. W, his dog was very important to him and his family, so much so that they sold the unit at a bargain price. They have sold other units in other complexes in which people were hostile to their dog. So how much is that doggy in the condominium worth? To the W's, it's worth several hundreds of thousands of dollars. That's how much he estimates he lost in selling his units at below true market value. A hostile environment, even in an atmosphere of beautiful people, is not a good place for dogs or for prodigious accumulators of wealth. Okay, there you go. You have now listened to the classic book, The Millionaire Next Door. A lot of good stuff in there. Uh, me personally, I particularly like the stories about Dr. North and Dr. South. Very fascinating. And, you know, you'll probably see this in life, and it's just assume, right? If someone's a doctor, or a lawyer, or or some high-earning professional, if, if they drive nice cars or live in a nice house, uh, that they're automatically uh, wealthy. Well, uh, when you use the wealth formula that they talk about in this book, the net worth uh, wealth formula, you realize that um, things might not always be as they seem. So hopefully the combination of these two books that you've now listened to, uh, The Total Money Makeover and The Millionaire Next Door, have really got you thinking about playing good defense with your money. So here is your homework for today's episode. Um, you are going to start and create dun, 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 the dreaded budget. You are going to make a budget. And I'm going to put a link on the show notes with a really basic budget. Um, it's a monthly cash flow budget, just money in, money out. It's going to be a budget that you can kind of print out and, and go over and look over. Um, I mean, there's a ton of things out there. You can just Google uh, budget and budget planning or money planning or cash flow planning or anything like that. And there's a ton of resources out there. Uh, I think Dave Ramsey even has a bunch of stuff on his website um, that go over some of these basic budgets. But you really need to account for your money and where it's going. 
So it's somewhat painful, but you need to do it. And that is your homework for today. Oh yeah, and one more thing. When you when you go for your budget, try and uh, throw a little dash of the Pareto principle in there. So what what are the, the two or three line items that if you could fix those um, would really, really help your budget out? So I, I can already probably tell you for most of you, that's going to be uh, you're spending too much money on a car payment. You're driving a nice car and that's preventing you from uh, saving money or paying down debt or putting money into a, investments. So you may want to think of a way to either pay off that car quickly or sell it and get a, a, a less expensive car uh, that will allow you to maybe save money at a more rapid pace. And the other big thing, uh, I, <laughs> I know this is probably my Achilles heel, is the other big thing is food. So many people spend a ton of money uh, without even realizing it because it can be uh, somewhat deceiving to spend 5 to $10 per day during your lunch and then maybe go out to eat with the family and drop 40, 50, 60 bucks uh, during the weekend just to take the family out. So um, those are kind of the Pareto principle sort of things I'm talking about that if you can control uh, a couple of those top two or three line items, um, your budget may become uh, a, a lot easier to bear. But just like a lot of other things we talk about on this show, a budget is just another um, form of planning. And planning is a big part of productivity. It's a big part of money. And it's a big part of success. So that's your homework. Start a budget. And that's about it for this episode, wrapping up what I consider the school of thought number one regarding money. Uh, next episode, I'm, I'm really excited about because we, we go into and touch upon what I consider the second school of thought when it comes to money. And I think both schools of thought can work really well hand in hand, uh, but I probably fall into school of thought number two a little bit more. And I will uh, talk about that on the next episode and we'll get you as well rounded as possible when it comes to money. So Go out there and make a difference. Get that budget together and take care of yourself and your family and start to build that legacy. All right, guys, we'll talk to you later. Thanks for listening. We hope you found a few nuggets of wisdom that you can apply to your life. Until next time, take action. Keep hacking and stacking your way to success.